to Streaming Banshees, your TV book club on the internet. This is Beep, and this is it. This is the finale of Hometown Cha Cha Cha. We are here. Here's where else we are. On Twitter, you can find us at TV Banshees. On Tumblr and Instagram at Streaming Banshees, though we're not there a whole lot. We are there in case Twitter goes away. But you can always find us on our website, StreamingBanshees.com. I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey guys, you can find me also in all of those places at a capital check. And we have special guest Heidi back. Hi guys, I'm happy to be back and you cannot find me anywhere. Thank the Lord. <laughs> See, you're doing good things. You're staying off the interwebs. It's good for you. <laughs> Beep, as you so aptly put it, this is it. We've been talking about Hometown Cha 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 for now officially a year and we are finally at the series finale. Before we dig in, I wanted to ask you guys sort of a big picture question because the three of us in various permutations and with many different shows are sort of at the point of our lives where we have watched the endings of a lot of series. And as you look back at sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly, I would love to hear from you two about what is important to you when you're watching a story end on television. So I'm going to use a strange word right now. The word I'm going to use is justice, even though I, I know that all the shows that we're watching are not like law and order shows. But when I use this word, I, I think that finales need to be just for the characters and they need to be just for the viewer. So I, as a viewer, if I've put a lot of time into watching this show, there are certain things I deserve and it's only right for me to get them. Answers to certain questions, for example, in certain you know shows like Lost, we all remember the finale to Lost and people being upset because they didn't get answers to certain questions. I deserve certain things and I have to get them for it to be a good finale. And then I need there to be justice for the characters, especially if the characters have worked hard for something or have wanted something badly. I want them to get justice. Mm. I would say to that, if there's ever an imbalance, the character should get it before I do. Oh, that's fair. I can I accept their ending, even if it's not what I wanted, if it makes sense, if it's, you know, if it goes with their with their arc, if it does all those things, I, I think for the character first and then for me. Yeah. I, uh, we, it's interesting because we had this discussion at the end of our 12 monkeys podcast. And that's a show that pulled off both things, right? It was the ultimate puzzle box show that answered every single question, like a list of 25, if we were going to sit down and write it, but it also honored the characters. And now, as I sort of look back on TV, a, a finale like Lost or Battlestar Galactica, which, you know, say I got to the end of it and I was like, I'm not, I'm not sure I actually understand what happened here. And at the time that, that really frustrated me, right? Because the whole thing you were led on as an audience was that there were going to be answers to questions. And so therefore we should invest our time and our emotional energy into trying to figure out the answers to those questions. And then you didn't get them. But as Beep said, I would rather have at least characters honored 
in sort of their emotional journey and their relationships with each other, which I think shows like Lost and Battlestar actually did, even if they didn't answer all of our questions. And to this day, I'm like, I don't understand what that island was, or I don't know if Starbuck was a ghost. Like if we're talking about Battlestar Galactica, do you know what I mean? But but they honored the characters. And what's interesting with Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha is, as we've said many times over the last year, the mysteries on this show were about people. And Shin Ha-Un has either at this point answered all of those mysteries or is about to reveal the final, maybe least serious one, but she's going to give us sort of a final answer in this one. And it honors all of the character journeys from our lead characters to our supporting characters and our ensemble cast. And it also does it in a way that, and now that we're sort of a year afterwards, 2022 both sort of in the K-drama world and it's evergreen in Western TV, happy endings were hard to come by. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite television writers in the U.S., Terry Metalis, said that the hardest thing to write is an earned happy ending. Which I think is interesting because I, I feel like, at least here in the United States, shows that have tragic or quote-unquote dark endings are sort of put up on a pedestal as more serious art. It's intellectualized somehow. Yes, exactly. And I think it's really interesting to think about that it's harder to write an earned happy ending than to write an ending where everything goes wrong or somebody just dies. Any thoughts about that? So after, it was after 12 Monkeys that this actually occurred, it was sitting down and right around that time, 2018, 19, 20, there were, you know, a couple good endings and then a bunch of very bad ones. At that time, kind of sat down and came up with what has become my three C's that are necessary for a good ending. And that is, the first one is consistency. I have never cared about any shows like in-world rules, whatever your schmience is. I don't care. I don't have to buy it. Just stick to it. Whatever it is, just stick to it. Be consistent. The second one is care. And that is mostly about the characters and their journeys. And then the third C is catharsis. When I am done, I might feel like I have been beat over the head, but I want to be appreciative over of it and not just be like, oh my God, why did I literally just torture myself? Mm, I think that's even more important when we're watching television. Sure, because of the time investment. Yeah, the time investment, right? I think that maybe some people would think just based on sort of like what I'm always yelling about about TV on Twitter or what we've been saying on podcasts that I somehow am like anti-tragic endings, which is actually not true. Like my favorite book is Atonement by Ian McEwan. It's the most devastating book that I've ever read. Some of my favorite movies like Casablanca, it's a very bittersweet ending, right? The couple does not end up together. But when I got to the end of those stories, I still felt like they mattered 
and what the characters did mattered, even if I didn't get what I wanted. But it was also about the emotional time investment. Reading a book or watching a two-hour movie is not the same as watching a multi-season American television show or a 16-episode, 1.5-hour K-drama where you've invested double-digit hours of your life only as your entertainment and your escape from the real world, which, by the way, hasn't been super awesome in the last two years. And they get to the end of it and nothing works out. And you feel like whether it was tragic slash nihilistic, that like the hardships and the emotional pain you went on the journey with the characters with, you get to the end and you're like, well, now like you either feel like a chump for caring so much, or you feel really drained because you're like, God, we went through all that and I feel terrible at the end. And I think, you know, and I think that that is harder to accept in television when you have spent a lot of hours with characters than it is when you read a book or when you watch a movie. Well, when I, when I think of Terry's quote and he, and he says, he talks about an earned happy ending. The first thing I wonder is, earned by whom does he mean earned by the writers does he mean earned by the characters or does he mean earned by the audience because that goes directly to what you're talking about cc i have earned i i don't necessarily think a happy ending is earned by the viewer that's about the characters and what should happen in the story but no, he's I, talking about the writers that they didn't just get to the end and and i mean the characters too that's how you earn it through the through the narrative but he's talking about the fact that you don't just be like, you know what? I think we're going to end it happy. And I think we'll do it like this when it doesn't like, it just comes out of left field, you know? Okay. But I still Which think people do that with bad endings too. They do. <laughs> you can have unearned unhappy endings like cousin Matthew randomly being hit by a car on his way in from a hospital in Downton Abbey oh or, my da- gosh. or Daenerys just going nuts because some bells rang in Game of Thrones and torching a, you know, a city full of civilians. You can have an unearned happy ending. Like somebody dies and like they randomly come back to life because they just made up some magic like in the last 10 seconds, right? An earned happy ending where you feel like the writers did the work to show us all of the steps along on the journey. The characters went on whether it is a quest in the outside world or an internal quest like we have here in Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha, that it's about forgiveness, self-forgiveness, intimacy, being honest, all of the things that were were really about interior journeys and relating to other people on this show. You you mean, Heidi, to your question, the audience goes on those journeys too. Like everybody's earned it. The writers have done the work. The characters have have gotten through those hardships and come out on the other side. And we, as the audience went through that with them. Yeah. And you've really hit on something, Cece. It's, I think it's like show your work in the math tests that we took. Totally. Or in Mm. school. They've got to show their work. And so you can't just have the answer. You have to show me how you got there. So I know you got there. Right. And that's the problem with game of Thrones or, or finales like that. I, there's no world. I don't think in which I would ever like that ending just because it was like, literally what was the point of anything? Mm. But the biggest thing that they did was they just, they did not take me there. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it can still be good writing if I don't like it, 
But if if I just can't make the leap, I mean, you you make they took a huge huge step with Daenerys's character in like thirty seconds, right? And it just wasn't. I mean, it wasn't there. What I think is so interesting, though, to pivot back to the finale that we're about to dig into, is structure wise, I feel like this finale breaks a lot of rules, at least as American viewers as to what we've come to expect a finale to be about. All of the major confrontations, reckonings that sort of needed to happen, especially for Chief Hong, happened in the last episode. Mm -hmm. We're going to spend the first 30 minutes mourning and sifting through the emotional fallout of a character dying. And then the rest of the finale, which is about 60 minutes, is just getting to hang out and be with and enjoy the characters that we've come to love, spending time with one another in their earned everyday happy endings. And yet it's really compelling to watch and it's a favorite finale of mine. How did they do that? I don't know, because you'd think it would have felt like it was dragging out, but it didn't. Yeah. And I can only think of two other, I I, I don't think, I think this is very uncommon on American TV. And, you know, admittedly, I've only been watching K-drama for about three years now. I, I can only think of sort of It's Okay to Not Be Okay or Descendants of the Sun, where they, they didn't kick the can as to the resolution to the very end. We kind of got that at the beginning or in the last episode. And now the rest of the episode is about just being with these characters who have been through so much and getting to watch them enjoy life. And it feels really good as the audience to get to spend that time with them and enjoy sort of the fruits of everyone's labor, both the characters and the audience. But you have to have really good writing to write those scenes that we still want to watch them, even though the dramatic tension of conflict is gone and really good directing and acting because we have to just want to watch these characters hang out. They did a really, really phenomenal job of that same type of thing in the finale of Orphan Black. It's uh, the first 20 minutes or so you're like, you know, it, it just resolved. And then you're kind of like, wait a second. But then what they did was they went back to like, oh, before you got embroiled in this insane sci-fi journey and these people trying to kill you, like you had problems before then, you're going to have problems after then. Sure. You're, you're, the difference is you're free to live your life now. You're free to make your choices but it yeah. was very much, it was very quiet. It was very chill. It was very much like, you know, oh, we've been shooting people for like 49 episodes. But now it's time to be like, what does it look like after that? And I thought it was a, a an incredible tribute to all the characters involved. Yeah. And that, so, I mean, and of course you always have, but the, like the contrast of what were the shows before, I feel, I felt like I got past that 30 minute mark and all of a sudden, I remember that Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha began as a romantic comedy <laughs> because that's the last 60 minutes of, of the finale. But you're like, oh, my God, everybody's smiling again and laughing again. And I'm smiling and laughing again, often smiling at the screen like an idiot for many scenes in this finale. 
But we went through the ringer for the last two to three episodes. And I, I, you know, if you go back to sort of what Shen Ha'un, what we talked about the last podcast where you read in the script book, that there was a lot of pressure or expectation on her as a writer that this last episode should be sort of like sad and heavy and quote unquote, like an important drama. And I think it was really brave and rare that she should, Heidi, to take it back to what you said, she showed all of her work mm-hmm. and we went through all of those very hard and cathartic conversations. And we're going to have the first 30 minutes where we're going to have a few more of those about grief. And then for the last hour, we get to just enjoy ourselves. And that's where the catharsis comes in. Yeah. Right, because catharsis is more than one emotion. It's all the emotions. Right, we're just releasing it all. We come to a good place, and now I don't feel like I've wasted my time. Well, and, you know, fairy tales all used to end with, and they lived happily ever after. Ah! <laughs> right? Like, the, there was the- not an earned happy ending, by the way. <laughs> there, was, there was a kiss, or there was a shoe found, or whatever, you know, from the fairy tales. There was a, oh, I love you, even though I just met you 10 seconds ago, that kind of thing. And they live happily ever after. And everybody talks about, hmm, I wonder, I wonder what happened after that. Well, probably most people don't, because they didn't really get to know those characters anyway. But people want to know, what does this really look like? In the moments after, in the days after, in the years after, the things that I was caring about here and now. And we can see from this finale how their life is going to kind of play out, how they're all going to be a community and how they're going to be when it's not in the middle of a tragedy. Yeah. And to bring it back. So I love that so much, Heidi, because it's like the the last 60 minutes of this finale are after what we would normally have accept it as the end period the ending of the movie that this television show is based on is heijin and chief hong sitting at night by the water and she's gonna stay that happens in the first 30 minutes of this episode then we get to actually see what does happily ever after look like not not just for them but for all of these other couples, right, that we have been spending time with or families or found families. And we get to see, like, what does this community look like after they have sort of had all of their reckonings and bravely dug out all of the hard things that they needed to talk about? We get to see what that looks like. And I think a lot of writers are intimidated to write that because there's sort of a feeling that, like, there's not enough dramatic tension or interest for an audience to watch that. Right. Uh, Because we don't see it a lot. And since I have watched this show, I'll be honest, I get frustrated when I watch another romantic comedy and I wait to the end and then they finally kiss and it's like the end. And I'm like, well, but 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 what happens after, (laughs) you know, like other television shows and movies? I find it really unsatisfying now to watch kick the can. Will they or won't they? And they kiss in the end. And I'm like, okay, well, great. Like but I kind of wanted to see what they were like as an actual couple, but all right. (laughs) Also the unearned happy ending would not have had Gamry die at all. It would, that would never have happened. It would have, we would have just sort of assumed that she lives on forever, 
this is, I think this is much more satisfying, not only because we got, we got the emotional catharsis for Chief Hong that he could go through, you know, I felt like I, I wasn't part of her family, but now I know that she considered me her son and her grandson, you know, all of that. But also we see how the community lives once she's gone and keeps, they keep her with them. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a good point because as, as joyful as the last 60 minutes of this finale are, it is tempered with the contrast of the grief we feel through many, many characters and the community in the first 30 minutes. And that almost makes the joy sweeter, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. It does. I feel like this episode really brings home the theme of community that has been running through this show from the beginning. It opens with a community in mourning, people coming together for a funeral, and it closes with a community celebrating a wedding and watching those people in celebration. And those are the two bookends, both when we are sad or when we are happy, we do that together. And I recently was at an event that was talking about rethinking or sort of recommitting to the idea of community coming out of the pandemic. And the speaker read this quote by a writer, Charles Vogel, from a book called The Art of Community. And here's the quote. Community is defined as a group of people who share mutual concern for one another's welfare. Or to put it more simply, community members believe other members care about them. And even though that sounds, as I read it, sort of obvious and straightforward, I don't know if that, first of all, I think that that's hard work. And second of all, I think that people can define community in far more superficial ways, such as where they live or where they work or common interests. But but that definition suggests that really what it's about is is like the work of caring for other people and the belief that those people care about you. And I think that a lot of what we've seen in this show and what is sort of brought home in this finale really speaks to that definition of community. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I think, I think my community is in no way related to my geographic location. It's, it's not, it, it's not related to the exact place I live or the building I live in or anything like that, but I have a community. The people who are in my geographic location, probably, I mean, we care about each other to the extent citizens care about each other. But your community is the people that you know they would be there for you and they know you would be there for them. So to sort of lead into the beginning of this episode, I thought it was really interesting that rather than sort of mine the drama that maybe a more typical television show would have done of, you know, the moment Dushik and Heijin find out that Gamri died, et cetera. We open this finale 
with a community gathered in Gamry's front yard doing what they have so often done at her house, which is to sit at tables together and share food and drink and laugh and talk. And it is, I think, beautifully real in the way that it explores how people, when they gather even to mourn, it's still about people talking and and laughing and eating food. I mean, I remember as a, as a kid, the first experiences I had going to wakes or funerals was sort of this surprising discovery that people had sort of everyday conversations and when they were sharing stories could still laugh and and talk about all of these things, even though it was we were at like a formally sad event. Any thoughts about following Heijin, our character who began as the fish out of water outsider in Ganjin, following her into this memorial for Gamri and sort of what we the way it sort of really puts an exclamation point on her character arc and the journey she's been on. Well, she talks shortly after that, she talks about liking everything about Gong Jin and, and how much she wants to be here. And I think that when she, when you see her go and pay her respects to Gam Ri, she doesn't say any of this, but it's what I imagine is in her mind. I imagine part of what she is mourning is that I just got here and I just started to adopt all of you as my family. And I just, I just finally got who I want to be and and who I want to be in this community. And then you died. She, she came to love Gamry so much and it was so quickly that she lost her. Mm. And, and Gamry was the first character that with Dushik's prodding, she helped. Mm-hmm. Think about her journey where the first community gathering that she went to was the party for the elderly. And Gamry offered her food with her hands. And Heijin was disgusted. And that gathering around a table ended very awkwardly and sort of as a as like a, a breakage of even the beginning of Haitian having a relationship with any of these people that she then had to like dig her way out of and missing her mother sitting down and having that quiet meal where it was just her and Gamry at Gamry's house and now she's standing in that same room and looking at Gamry's photograph and crying and I think it's so interesting how Heijin, seeing Heijin in that room and crying is then contrasted with Gamri's son and granddaughter that we are now seeing for the first time because they never showed up until it was her funeral. And I think it's a really interesting contrast of sort of found family and, and biological family. So she comes out of that room and she's looking at these photographs of Gamri. And as the audience, we realize 
And then Dushik explains that Gamri at a wedding saw a table filled with everyday photographs that are snapshots from presumably the bride and groom's life. And that for her funeral, which was the only party she anticipated having left to throw, she wanted photographs of her life. And what we had been watching since episode two, when Dushik was at that party and he said, no, I'm not taking photographs for a job today was he was taking those photographs to honor Gamry's life and wishes to have those photographs on the table. I, of course, always assumed that when he was taking pictures, it was a hobby. That seemed to make perfect sense, especially with him saying, this is not a job, it's a hobby. And I never noticed how many of his pictures were of Gamry. Mm. And it makes perfect sense now when you look back on it. And and it's it's it, it's a bittersweet like all of this because he was doing what she had asked for, but what she had asked for in anticipation of her death. So it's he's taking happy pictures in anticipation of a very sad event. Yeah, uh, and what I what I think is so beautiful about it, especially when you think about it at the end of this episode when Dushik is like, I, I thought you'd want to take wedding photos in a studio is that these photographs were not staged. They're not portraits. They are snapshots of Gamri just living everyday life in Ganjin, where Dushik was just quietly in the background taking these photographs, Sometimes when she probably wasn't even aware, like, do you remember he catches them in the flower field? Yeah. And then, and then they sort of like pose and have fun with it. And they're like, oh, but we're not even dressed up or, you know, have makeup on and stuff like that. And, and it's almost like that's the point. Or they were at the elderly party and they were just there all talking at a table and he's just quietly in the background taking photographs. And it's really, I mean, there's just so many layers to it because the show in so many ways celebrates that life is about those everyday unplanned for moments. And this is a found son taking photographs of his found mother slash grandmother who, you know, is the reason why he's even still here. Right. One of my favorite photographs of my brothers and I happens to be, it was Easter Sunday and my mom was trying to get a nice picture, quote unquote, of the three of us. And she couldn't because we were just telling jokes and making each other laugh. So we, there was no way we could get a good photo. We have one of the three of us laughing hysterically. And it's one of my favorite pictures because it's not, it's not what the photographer was trying to get. It doesn't, I don't want a picture that just shows how nice I looked on a certain day. I want to show a picture that shows how we all felt. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Or I read a, a piece written by a playwright whose mother passed away maybe 10 years ago about how later in her mom's life, her mom felt like she had sort of put on weight and, didn't feel really confident about being in front of the camera and moms already to begin with are the ones that are often behind the camera, right? Like I get to the end of the year to do a Christmas card and I can barely find a photograph of myself because I was the one taking all the pictures. But, but to, this idea that like 
we could only we should only look our quote unquote best for a photograph and then when you're gone all people want is to just be able to see your face Right. And they're not thinking about that. They're, they just like, and this is both a celebration of Gamry's life, but is also a gift to everybody who's left behind. There's a, you know, Dushik is going to put a photograph of her next to a photograph of his grandfather. Gonjin is going to be so grateful just to be able to see her on their television screen, talking and moving again. Right. And so there's just something that's really beautiful about how every day these photographs are and the way that it is revealed to us that this was something that Dushik was doing all along. And just like Heijin, we were watching him do it and we didn't know. Do you all remember after the really awkward conversation at the party for the elderly in episode two. Heijin sort of stormed off in a huff and Chief Hong offered her a bowl of, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, but if I'm not, um, my apologies, Yuk Gay Zhang. And she said, food cooked outside is so unsanitary. And she <laughs> refused to eat it and was basically Dushik was basically like, are you calling this dirty? Right. Now he offers her the same dish and then it's like, oh, but that's right. Like you wouldn't want any of that. And she says, I want a bowl. Fill it to the brim. It's a, it's a stark contrast, obviously, to, you know, originally her first answer. It shows a lot about her character development. But I think even more than that, though, it shows just her massive respect for Gamry. Yes. Yeah. And it's a little bit of an apology mm. for how she behaved way back in the first few episodes. I mean, it was very impolite for her to have said that, even if she didn't want the soup. Or whatever, you know, like that was that was quite a thing to say out loud. And I think when she says, yep, give it to me. I want it. Fill it to the brim. It's it's I'm sorry that I behaved that way. And I'm accepting everything about this place. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The good, the bad, the mess, whatever it whether it's sanitary, unsanitary. I don't even care. Just give yeah. me everything. She's in. Yeah. Because what we didn't know on first watch, but is really uh, sort of gray. It's almost like we should have known, right? Uh, in the last episode, whether or not she was going to stay in Gunjin was left as this cliffhanger. And what we should have known from the very sort of steady, affectionate, and grounded way that Heijin and Jushik are in these scenes together is she's already told him that she's going to stay, that Gunjin is now her home too. And that she loves this place and the people in it. Um, mm -hmm. And they've already had that conversation. We just didn't know it <laughs> on first watch. Right. And it's just such a lovely, you know, if we're going back to like show your work or show don't tell, this yep. is a show me moment for her character arc that she is now like fill it to the brim. And, and being called over by everyone. Dr. Yoon, like, come sit with us. All the people that were in that scene, except for Gamry, 
in episode two where she was so condescending and off-putting that basically they all either like kind of averted their eyes or walked away from sitting with her are now calling her all over and she's going to sit down and and eat with them. And it's just really beautiful moment for her character arc and sort of that this has become her community. Speaking of Heidi, to go back to what you said a few minutes ago about community, not just being about people who live in close proximity to one another, who shows up to this funeral from Seoul? Oh, director G. Mm. Yeah. Such a great guy. Yeah. Remember when Gamory was so suspicious of him when he wanted to film the how the, the show yeah. at her house and you know, he kind of wooed her in his way and was doing the dishes and it's really he's such a great character, but like this journey that he went on in Gunjin, which is obviously going to mean a lot of different things to his character as we go on through the episode. But but Gamry mattered to him. Like even this very successful, famous like television director, the time that he spent with her, he's in the middle of like editing his finale, right? They've been working, you know, as we'll see, they're like working around the clock. He still drives all the way there just to share food in Gamry's house. As they're leaving, talk to me about this scene and sort of how far we have come with Dushik's ability to sort of talk about his feelings out loud and his relationship with Heijin, where after after Jiwon and director Ji leave, Heijin is like, it seems to me that you are pretending to be okay. Well, she knows him, obviously. Oh, she yeah. knows him now? <laughs> yeah. Get away with this. <laughs> she just called him to the carpet, like, let's go. Come on. Yeah. yeah. Like, we're not those people anymore nope. but we, who keep stuff from each other. Nope. It's out. Let's do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then talk to me about how he responds. Well, his response rang so true to me. And I think is the reason we didn't get a scene of Chief Hong finding out that Gamry had passed away because it was not real to him. And it took a long time for it to be, to be real to him, especially in this day and age. I think the way we keep in touch with each other is so worse. It's so easy for us to always think that the person is there and think everything is great because we can text and, you know, that kind of thing. And so honestly, if someone disappears from your life, you, you don't have to acknowledge that for some period of time because it can just be as if, well, they're, we just haven't texted in a while, that kind of thing. And so he was able to let it be while he had to do things. I have to set up the wake and the funeral, I have to make all the preparations, I have to do all the things, he can let it be not real. And he now, because he can, he can really be in touch with his own emotions, is acknowledging it's not real yet. No, I think you're dead on. I think in this moment, him saying that he is kind of fine, it's not, he's not just putting her off. He's, he's now voicing it. Like, no, yeah, I, it's not that I'm unwilling to do this now. I just don't need to do it right now. Right. Yeah. I, I, it, 
I think it's interesting from from both sort of a universal standpoint, right, of sort of the grieving process when it doesn't feel real yet, when you stay busy. Mm-hmm. And p- part of part of the ritual of grieving is is sort of like built into that, right? Like you have things to do, right? You have to plan a memorial. You have to deal with people's things, right? All, all of those steps that can kind of keep your hands busy before you have to sort of do the hard emotional part of dealing with the absence of that person. But I think it's also really interesting. I mean, this is a character that we spent like 14 episodes with him evading straightforward questions just like this. But he's now at a point and they are now at a point where she asks a direct question and he gives an honest and self-aware answer of like, I just want, I'm, I'm still not good at this. And I just want to keep her around a little bit longer. And, And I think it's really what sort of drew these two characters together from the beginning, the very first intimate conversation they ever had was about Heijin feeling like she was losing the memories of her mother. Remember when they were drinking the wine? And it's I, I really love how it comes full circle in many ways. If we think back to sort of that quote from Heijin's letter that they're that even though they're very different, their shadows are the same. What always drew these two people together is that they were able to talk really honestly about loss in a way that they kind of recognize that in one another. And I love sort of the very quiet, steady, like talking about grief, holding hands, looking at their community together and sort of all of the ways that these scenes show us that they're partners in this very kind of like quiet and steady way. And obviously we're going to get a lot of sort of like the fun rom-com stuff later, but it feels like this kind of very like, like it's a partnership. I think she's done more for him than his therapist ever did as far as helping him deal with his emotions and you can see the progress because you can see at first he was only able to speak to her while he had been drinking. And now they can be sober and mm. talking to each other and revealing emotions to each other. They've both made a lot of progress in that sense. Oh, that's such a good point. Yeah. We have a scene that is between two sons on their mother who has died's front porch. There is a lot to unpack about this scene in both the sort of universal what happens when you feel guilty because somebody is gone and and you have regrets because you didn't take advantage of the time you had left and what this scene means for Hong Jushik's character arc in terms of dealing with guilt Talk to me about Gamry's biological son saying this really, I think the writing in this scene is really straightforward, but it really hits hard with sort of the contrast between these two sons. I can't quite picture my mother's face. 
I've been staring at her photo all day, but it looks strange to me. You really do lose memories. And I think I've never talked to anybody who's an expert in this, but there seems to be kind of an order in which you lose them. I say that because I I lost one of my grandfathers when I was young. And I noticed a few years later, obviously, I remembered what he looked like and I remembered what he meant to me, but I could no longer hear his voice. I I couldn't remember what his voice sounded like. Mm. And that was upsetting to me. And I I think that's one of the first things you lose, even though you can still picture people, maybe because you can look at actual photographs and maybe it doesn't happen anymore now because we have videos with sound. But I get what he means when he feels like something, a memory is disappearing. Yeah, but here's the contrast. Dushik just told Heijen that he can still hear Gamri calling for him from the alley. Mm-hmm. And he can still picture her sitting on this porch and talking to him. But her son had seen so little of his mother that he already can't picture her face. <laughs> it's really, it's, it's, uh, gutting. it's, it's gutting. Yeah. I, I think that he says something that is probably something that people say all the time at someone's memorial is that, unless you really know that the end is coming because of a long-term illness and get a chance to spend time with someone and say goodbye. I thought my mom would stay in my life for a long time. So I kept putting off seeing her because I thought there would be plenty of chances. I can't imagine how many people have probably said, I thought there would be more time. Right. Heidi, you mentioned this before. Talk to me about the contrast between Gamry's biological son not knowing that his mother ever got the implants and Dushik and Heijin and everything that we saw as the audience that they did to make sure that that happened. It would be easy for me to say that Dushik was acting more like a son than Gamri's son actually did, but I don't think that's necessarily true because I think so many adult children drift away from their parents. I think that kind of is acting like a son. Mm-hmm. So so I don't think that's exactly what I want to say, but it obviously Dushik was the one who was in the picture and doing the caring for her. And he's the one that isn't related to her. And even in his mind, maybe didn't even think he was entitled to the to consider himself part of her family. Yeah, it really hits home what we have been watching all along and what Gamri is going to say in her letter that Dushik was her son. And her grandson. And that was through his actions and his love for her, whether they were biologically related or not. And there's a lot in this show that's really beautiful about 
sort of non-traditional families in that way and found families, whether that's because you people are working in too busy and you're lonely and you find companionship and family in those that have the time and interest to spend their days with you, whether you're rejected by your family like Cho He and you find a community around yourself that is you know, one that's accepting and loving of you, or Dushik, who found Gamri and Heijin, or his young, who were all found family after he lost his parents and his grandfather. And this is just like, again, it's like a show, but don't, I mean, Gamri's going to say it in her letter, but mm-hmm. a scene like this, you're sitting there as the audience and you're like, oh my God, we watched all of that happen and her son had no idea. But Dushik is incredibly generous. Mm -hmm. And even though he is experiencing his own grief because he was so close to her, he gives Gamri's son a gift by essentially accepting his apology for Gamri because he can't apologize to Gamri anymore. And he says to her, no, 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 you have no idea how proud she was of you and how happy you made her. He, He consoles the person who should have been there. Right. It's, uh, I mean, when the son is like, I don't know what to do with this guilt. (sighs) That has defined Dushik's life for years. And so you have this beautiful circle because the last conversation that Dushik had with Gamri was about guilt and living your life. And now he, you know, when he says Gamri never would have thought that way, like he knows that because Mm -hmm. Gamri offered that wisdom to him and now he's offering it to her son. It's really, he just sort of sits there with her son while he cries. And, And when you think about sort of this scene and then the scene later on, we're going to get with Gamry's letter and then him being able to cry, the show shows us these sort of all the different ways that people grieve and, and all of the things that are sort of swirling around when you lose somebody and you are, even when, even when we lose someone when they're 80 years old, you know, like, uh, and people sitting next to each other quietly, why people cry. And we're doing like, this is a series finale, right? I feel like so many series finales, you feel like there has to be these like dramatic twists or big epic moments. And there's a lot of like very quiet, intimate moments of people talking and crying and like showing their emotions in this finale. Talk to me about the scenes that we see outside with the community grieving together in this procession outside. This the first episode of this series showed Dushik and Tejen walking in single file to the left through this field. Yes. In the finale, we have the entire community walking side by side and Dushik and Tejen in particular walking side by side through that same field in the opposite direction. And it is a beautiful sort of juxtaposition of the symbolism there of the journey that we've been on, both for this community and in 
course, for our two main characters, right? The poster, uh, one of the main posters for this show is those two characters walking apart and in single file through this field. And now sort of the culmination of the journey is, is this like, even though it is solemn, the music is beautiful and the cinematography is gorgeous. And it is this sort of really lovely, just sitting with this sort of this community mourning together. And that's, as important and as beautiful as the scenes we get at the end of the episode of a community celebrating a wedding. I will tell you that I happened to watch this finale when in real life during the pandemic, I had to a few days before watch a funeral on Zoom. And something just kind of like broke open inside me watching people be able to mourn together when the show aired and how important that is. And I love the way the show depicts that as, as beautiful. Like these scenes are beautiful in every way and in, in the way they look and the way the music sounds. And even if it's a funeral. In the procession, they move almost like an organism, almost like they are one. Yeah, I love that. But that's the community morning together. When we have to really go deep into Jushik's interior life, that always happens inside his house. What do you think is going through Jushik's head when he's outside his house and cutting the soap? I think that scene is kind of like a scene that you see. It's almost a trope. Um, in in other places where someone is setting the table and they set they unconsciously set a place for the person who is gone. Mm. I think this is this is a new take on that that he's making too much of something because this is one of the things he would have given to Gamry. Right. And and like so many things that this finale does, both with musical cues or or visual things like this, we as the audience remember that funny scene of the three grandmothers gossiping about Haitian and he was cutting the soap, right? And yeah. and it's like it's like a it's like the visual language of the show. They just have to even before he said I made too much when he was cutting the soap in his yard, I was thinking of that scene from the beginning yeah. of the series and thinking of Gamry. So Haitian comes to check on him. As kind of a funny note, I thought that he handled the fact that she was proposing to cook for him very well. Didn't you guys? (laughs) He's really learned, hasn't he? (laughs) Talk to me about when she finds the corn in his refrigerator. That maybe almost like the suit, he has been unable to throw away. Yeah, he said he couldn't even touch it. And so it it took Heijin to do that. And who knows if if he hadn't had her when he ever would have found that letter. It's also kind of a replacement, if you will, for him finding out about her at all. 
it shows you, obviously, we know he found out he was at the memorial, right. but it kind of shows you some things he's been doing in private since he found out as well. Yes. Yeah. Or not doing. Right. And I mean, there's a lot that they do to sort of underscore sort of this passing of the torch about the person who's gone and the person now who's by his side, right? Because the corn was left by Gamri because she was worried about him eating. Heijin is now here because she's worried that he hasn't had a meal yet. And she's the one bringing this letter to him. Heijin says, they say when you lose a loved one, you should mourn plenty. If not, the grief travels all through your, your body and it bursts later. Any thoughts about the wisdom in that? This reminds me of something my mom always says to friends, you know, when they get injured and they want to right away start against the doctor's advice, walking around when they're not supposed to or doing whatever. And she always says, you can either heal right or you can heal again. Mm. Meaning do this properly. Otherwise, you're just going to re-injure yourself. And then it, we're going to be right back where we are. And I think emotionally, I think that's what Heijin is talking about, that you you have to properly feel these feelings or it's going to come back and get you later. Yeah. The interesting part about this and what's always connected them is that she went through this with her mom. You know, and he's, he's lost a lot of people in his life, but even though she had her father, she's had to grieve alone. So I think she's probably saying this is you know, part of her own understanding and her own healing. And I think that Heijin actually does receive even more healing, obviously, from this relationship, too. It's not like, you know, we've always said, it's not like she fixed him or he did that for her. But I think she's also speaking from a place of experience with that because she always did it alone. And she did do it, I think. I mean, she would come on the anniversary. You know, she paid tribute to her mother. She has worked hard at this herself, so she doesn't want to see that happen to him again after she just saw it because let's be honest she just saw the the bursting yeah yeah beep do you want to read gamry's letter oh yeah of course (laughs) come on i've been waiting for this god (sighs) all right this is such a grandma letter it's just such a it's such a grandma letter. Do mm-hmm. Sheik, you should eat. No matter how hard life gets, one should still eat. Ever since you were a child, you've been living with a broken heart. And the only thing I could do was cook you food. You ate the food and it made you grow so tall. You have no idea how proud I was of you. Do Sheik, do you remember what you said to me? You said that the best thing a parent can do for their child is staying healthy. It's the same with parents. It tears our hearts out when our children are in pain. Dushik, you are my son and also my grandson. Don't you ever forget that. Dushik, people should live among other people. Life may seem like a burden to you at times, but if you choose to be among others, just like you did for me, someone will carry you on their back. So Dushik, stop locking yourself up in your house. Eat the food I made and come out to see us. She's one of the wisest people. Mm. 
Yeah, like sometimes it's gonna suck, but you know what? It sucks better with people. <laughs> I feel like is what you know she's ultimately yeah. getting at. Yeah, I, there's. Oh, I, I, of course, as we hear her words, we see her writing this letter, and then we see this beautiful montage of basically this love story between an 80-year-old woman and a 35-year-old man. All of these moments, right? Him literally carrying her on his back when he brought porridge for her when she had her implants, delivering milk, when they were walking side by side in their last conversation. And it's... I love the like the the like to bring it back to one of your C's be the care in honoring this relationship between these two characters. Does she know unconsciously that she's going to be gone soon? I ask because this was ostensibly this letter was with the corn and and it was she wanted him to get it immediately sure and she says come out and see us so it it by its own words it is intended to be come on and i'm still here but it reads so much like a message that's meant to be received after someone is gone i agree i agree you could speculate that on one way or another i mean i don't think you can pull that out of the show but mm. it wouldn't surprise me if that was just like a small indication of she knew like my time is running short and on a, on a previous podcast, our guest, Aaron Brown, had said, what a gift that ultimately this message was delivered in writing rather than a conversation because it's something he can always hold on to even after she's gone. Yeah, I found myself worried when he started to cry that his tears were going to mess up the handwriting because I wanted they, him to always have this. They did a little bit, just a little bit, right? <laughs> There's a, I think, okay. yeah. Oh, and he's um, always like, she always had such pretty writing. And you're like, mm -hmm, okay. <laughs> let's just distract ourselves for sure. I mean, I, I, there's the, there's this beautiful theme of Gamry's words reaching him when he needs it, whether it was that text message or now because he needs to finally let himself grieve and not just for her, like he never has. And, you know, the words of her letter, what I think they play with so many different moments and sort of the, the sort of like, what I think is so interesting is you have Heijin and Dushik sitting here reading Gamry's letter. And she says, you said the best thing a parent can do for their child is staying healthy. It's the same for parents. That was wisdom that came from Heijin. Yeah. That she passed to Dushik, who Dushik then passed on to Gamri in a moment where he was trying to pay for it and she wouldn't accept it and was mad at him. And, you know, he will say after he finished reading the letter, you know, I always thought she wouldn't accept my money because I wasn't biological family. That moment for Gamri was her realizing he thinks of me like a mother and like a grandmother, right? And so like all of this is coming in this like beautiful full circle of what all these people have been for one another. 
And this Gambrine magic, because this is the second time that her message to him has mm-hmm. come to him at exactly the right moment. Yeah, I think it's just maybe the lesson is you never know how important small acts will be. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a very heartfelt letter. I don't think that her text to him on that terrible night was necessarily substantive, but it hit at the exact right time. Right. Again, when I watched this in 2021, when we were still largely isolated from one another, the line people should live with other people hit me really hard because we couldn't and you know and it seems so straightforward and something that we so at least i absolutely took for granted before but i still have moments now where i will be able to walk into my children's school or be able to go to a concert and be around other people or just all of the things that we used to take for granted of doing with other people and still think like, I'm so glad that we get to do this now. I, I hope, like, I, I would like to think I will hold on to that. I don't know. We tend to forget these lessons that Gamry often reminds us of in this show. But I don't know. This letter is really beautiful. There's so much wisdom in it. I think in the early days of the pandemic, I I kind of joked a little bit. I, I live alone. And so I had to stay here by myself, but I am an introvert and I enjoy being by myself. And so I would joke with people about, oh, it's okay. The lockdown doesn't matter because it just means I have to live the way I always live. And that I was joking because... People do need people. And after a while, it becomes a heavy weight not to be able to associate with other people. And I think in the pandemic, an awful lot of people have deteriorated as a result of the loneliness, psychologically and even physically. And so I think we were very aware of all of that while we were watching this. Yeah. I mean, even medically... Mm-hmm. The elderly mentally deteriorated from lack of interaction with other people and hastening things like dementia and neurological decline, like actual physical ramifications because human beings couldn't be around one another. Sure. And that's well, just putting it, that's just putting it. That, and then on top of that, you have like all the emotional ones. Um, yeah. It, it, people are like houses. They say in a little bit after this that houses tend to deteriorate faster if there's no one living in them. Oh. It's, it's the same way. We deteriorate if if we don't have the people with us. Yeah. That just broke me, Heidi. What the? Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Cece. Yeah. That was, it was weird what you say, Heidi, because I'm the same way. Like I was living alone and I'm an introvert and, yeah. you know, that's fine initially it was kind of like yeah whatever cool like the the oddly nice thing about it was like i don't have to make decisions about whether or not to go anywhere and how much energy that's going to cost me because i just can't go anywhere right but then it very much became also that introvert thing of like what do you mean i can't go anywhere like you don't tell me what to do right (laughs) 
introverts feel very much in charge. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So at first it was like, oh, thank goodness. I don't have to make decisions. I don't have to be around people. I can just rest. And then it was like, oh, no, I don't like being told what to do. Right. So <laughs> I think that actually, I mean, this is a whole different thing, but I think a lot more introverts are a lot more messed up after the pandemic than they realize. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm an extrovert and I still feel like my social skills are a little broken, you know, like, but you're aware of it. <laughs> but, but I mean, I, I just like getting back in the habit of, of, of making plans and seeing people and it, it, it's, I don't, it's interesting watching like children at different ages have gone through the pandemic and what social anxiety has, has been born of that time of two years of being alone or just with your family while you were developing. We are social creatures, whether we have, we are on a spectrum of, of how much we crave that or, or how easy or hard that is for us as individuals. It sounds really basic. People should be with other people, but it's also talking about you carried me on your back. And that was, I will tell you, that is the first scene where I really started to love his character was watching this 35 year old man carry an 80 year old woman on his back. <laughs> and, yeah. and now you think about the symbolism of that moment because Ganri carried Dushik on her back when she sent that text. And when he was a little boy and he had lost his family and she fed him. And when he came back to Ganjin broken and she brought him food and the community carried him on their backs when they checked in on him and they gave him things to do. Right. And that was really like what that was the undercurrent of sort of how he got through everything that he went through. But it's also what we've been watching everybody do for one another in this show, right? What they did for Nam Suk, what Hei Jin has done for members of the community and all of these little like episode by episode stories about what people needed from Jury wanting braces to Gamri needing the implants. We watched Oyun carry his daughter physically on his back you know, running to go see her idol when that had been the source of so much conflict between the two of them. We have watched people figuratively and physically carry one another on their backs. And that's community, right? That is a metaphor for caring about one another's well-being. Is that what when you do that, it means when one of us falls down, then there's somebody there to pick you up. Tell me about this moment where the man who told his psychiatrist, yes, I believe everyone who loves me leaves and it's my fault, who has lost everyone from his parents to his grandfather to his found big brother, says, but she called me her son and also her grandson. I think when you're in that sort of place where you can actually say, I th 
think that everyone who loves me leaves me and I have evidence of that. And so you can't convince me otherwise because I can tell you everything that has happened. I can show you that that is the case. And you get a letter like that from Gamri and you can see that this woman who's been with him for his entire adult life and part of his childhood loved him that much. That's the evidence that counteracts what he thought before. Yeah. And that you, there was so much about being defined as an orphan, meaning his existence is defined by who's not there. And now someone who is gone, he's holding a letter in his hands written by her and he is still her son and he is still her grandson, even though she's no longer here. I didn't realize until I watched this show, the sort of stigma that went along with being an orphan. Like when the, when the parents, when Haitian's parents come into town and, and they don't want her to be romantically involved with him because he's an orphan and how important that was. Cause I, I don't think that way, but they, they had ideas about what that meant. And so it's, I think it's even more important than we may realize to have someone call him their son. Mm, yeah. What I love about this moment for Dushik beyond this, the, the, you know, more straightforward, he, he had a family all along even if they were not biological, is he has spent so many years of his life trying to make up for what he thought he did or failed to do with the security guard and his young. And here he was doing things every day for someone else. And what that meant was it cultivated a family because he, she was as important for her as she was to him. You know, when she says you carry me on your back, yes, we remember when he physically did that, mm -hmm. but he was the one who was there for her when her biological family wasn't in every way, both for companionship and in helping her enjoy her final months with getting implants and being able to sort of live her life happily and not in pain, you know? So it's sort of like this character who beat himself up so much and that's their last conversation where she was like, you do so much for other people. The way that it sort of comes back to him in this moment is really beautiful. Talk to me about the culmination of this male character's arc being that he can finally and fully cry. I can't think where I've ever seen this before. No, no, not, not quite so blatantly for sure. In direct response to the correct thing. Right. I, not, I mean, what, right. That it doesn't come out in, 
I mean, if you just think about things that we talk about so much in the real world, right, about men processing their emotions in a healthy way and not through anger or violence. Right. And a lot that we've talked about, a lot of sort of the hard work Dushik had done before we ever met him with therapy. But this is about that crying is healthy for men and for women, right? And that's what Heijin like told him, like it, it basically that if you bottle this up, it's like bottling up like a poison in your body that goes everywhere. You need to let it out. And you and, don't have to be stoic because you're a man. That's not helping anybody. Right, right. I mean, I, I can't think of another, again, I, we mentioned it before, the only other scene I can think of where I saw a man cry in the context of grieving somebody who's gone and their own mental health is in normal people. And, and this really beautiful scene with Paul Mescal where he's talking to his therapist, but even then he's kind of trying to hold it back. This is a scene that's staged where the woman is the strong one holding the man and the man is crying. I mean, as she says, crying his eyes out. Like we've, and I think it's really interesting because from a per performance perspective, we have watched Dushik hold back tears a lot and sometimes one or two slipped out, but it was definitely trying to hold it back. We saw him cry in, I think, a very purposefully painful way when he was in the car after the accident Right. This is different. And I think that's on purpose. This is cathartic, to bring it back to the word that Beep used at the beginning. This is letting it all out. And it's not just Gamry. It's everybody that he has lost that we watched all of those times when he was a teenager at his grandfather's memorial, just sitting there against the wall, listening to people insensitively talk about how it was his fault when he went to his big brother's memorial and was yelled at and told to leave when he was alone sitting in a house with nobody else there to be with him. And now he finally is in his house with somebody who loves him and he is able to cry like we all should. Shen Ha-un wrote that the reason why she went through with the death of Gamri was quote, I wanted to give Dushik a chance to properly grieve and mourn. Dushik never cried out loud, even after losing his loved ones. I hoped that Dushik would shake off his past wounds through death and go through a true healing process. Death is just nature's providence. So it's not his fault. He can cry as much as he wants to, and Heijin is there to comfort him. Dushik is now ready to live the next life after suffering a loss. In the place where Gamri left, the buds will sprout again, the leaves will grow, and the flowers will bloom. It is up to the people who remain in Ganjin, Heijin and Dushik. They will live by inheriting such good things and warm things, and that's how life goes on. I think this is an indication of, like we discussed last time, that 
there's been so much death in this show. And now it's taking this moment to reframe what that means. Because all the deaths have been like sudden illnesses, violence, accidents, suicide attempts, you know? And now it's just like, no, this woman was old and her life is over now. And that's going to happen to everybody. So I think that it was a purposeful and, and really poignant reframing of what death even is. I didn't didn't think of that, Beep, how, how this is the first death we've seen that is just natural and the way things are supposed to happen. I mean, I guess technically you could say the grandfather, I mean, he just died of a heart attack, but because it happened, you know, and he was much older, but because it happened when Dushik was such a child, like there just wasn't that understanding. Yeah. So this is definitely the first time, even though it's not the first natural time, this is the first time that, that it's really hit home. It's natural for do chic. Right, exactly. He's not, for he's not being like, oh my goodness, because I didn't eat the corn, I killed Gamry. You know, exactly. I mean, exactly. There's yeah. no feelings he can possibly feel about this one. But the and the other important distinction from every other time that we have watched him lose someone in flashback is he has someone to grieve with. Because at all of these other memorials where he was either indirectly or directly being blamed. That's one piece of it. He still was alone. Yeah. You know, either because his biological family was gone when his grandfather died or because the people who should have been mourning with him were blaming him. And so there's this piece of it that is to bring it back to this theme of sort of found family or community or people belong with other people we belong with other people when we mourn too. And I don't think it is a coincidence. I mean, I think it's a culmination of a lot of things, but I don't think it's a coincidence that he is able to fully cry while someone is now there holding him. No, 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 of course not. But that all goes hand in hand because he never would have been able to let the first part go without having that person Right. That he trusted to begin with. So right. it's it's all just a culmination of, you know, what she has been in his life, what she represents as far as Haitian goes, and then also Gamry and how far he's come. Yeah. I mean, when Haitian said in the last episode, you can cry with me, you know, it's beautiful. That is what he is now doing. Like, that's how, and, you know, again, I love that, that it's, a man doing it and it's the woman who's there being strong and holding the man while he cries because we don't see that a lot not not in this healthy way you know what i mean like she's not like propping him up she's there as a partner to sort of bring full circle and saying goodbye to gamry i also love that the show takes the time and you know i think it's interesting there's there haven't been voiceovers in, in this series until this finale. And we get two where our two main characters are speaking to the audience. And right now it's Hei Jin telling us while that the show shows us that everybody grieves in a different way. And that kind of goes through all of these characters that we now love 
in different ways remembering Gamri as they go about their daily life in Ganjun, right? From remembering how she used to sit outside the grocery store and gossip to Hajung kind of stopping and, you know, walking by her house. Oyun kind of like stops playing music and is thinking about her. And it's, you know, it's, it's also healthy. Like, yes, we cry. We also all grieve in different ways, depending on like what our relationship was with somebody and who we are. I normally don't like voice voiceovers like this, partially because I don't like for the wall to be broken if it hasn't been broken for the entire series. Like, I kind of don't feel like you should be talking to me as a viewer. And also because they are often a substitute for actually showing me something that you should be showing me. Mm-hmm. I, I would rather you not, as the character, just tell me that it all worked out. I'd rather see it. But this didn't bother me, partially because you were, they were showing us while the voiceover was happening. Yeah. And, and I think symbolically, it's interesting. Heijin... The two voiceovers we get from our two main characters, Heijin and Dushik, are our two characters that either are defined by or we have watched grow into people who love and serve Gonjin. And so in this part, Heijin is telling us about how the community mourned Gamri. And at the end, towards the end of the episode, we're going to get Dushik talk about how Gonjin flourished in the summer after this television show aired. And so they're telling us about their community mm-hmm. as sort of these two bookends in sort of a time of mourning and then the time of sort of growth and flourishing after that. All right. I think we need to and our listeners all take a deep breath because now... And from now on, we get to just have fun. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> running downhill. Running downhill <laughs> from down here in our special shiny shoes or sneakers, depending on what you wear. Okay. I really love the meta of the Seaside Grasshopper show that is the finale is being edited and it's premiering as we're watching the finale of the television show hometown cha 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 let's check in with this long suffering gestating romance between director Ji and Wan. and this moment where Jiwan has a stomach ache and director Ji's doing his thing where he's pulling his snacks and medicine out of his mom bag for Jiwan like he used to for Heijin back in college. And Jiwan basically lays it all out there and says, can you please stop being so nice to me? Talk to me about how finally very direct she is about why she can't work with him anymore. This speech is the most true thing I personally have ever heard I have had this conversation and it and it rang so true to me for her to tell him first of all don't act like you don't know how much I like you because that's nonsense you have to have figured it out by now so let's not play that game anymore you know I have feelings for you and secondly stop being so nice to me because you're hurting me you're giving me hope when that happens and I can't I just can't take it Hmm. That's really brave. Of, yeah. 
you and her, like real you, real you and fictional her and, and, and important because it's not just brave. It's standing up for yourself. Yeah. I'm not going to let you do this. I'm not going to let you have the benefit of this beautiful thing that we have, but you know what I feel it as. Mm. And if you don't feel it that way, then you're hurting me when you do this. So this sort of status quo has been going on for a while, right? Like he has been struggling with whether to say something, but she finally really throws down the gauntlet and is direct, which sends him (laughs) driving to Gungeon to talk to his BFF, Chief Honk. Which is so ridiculous when you consider the the trail of their friendship that that Chief Hong, who took the girl. <laughs> but not his girl, not the girl he's meant to be with, right? <laughs> the original girl. <laughs> that, that's who he goes to for advice about this new girl. <laughs> I know. I honestly, I, you know, we've said it 80,000 times, but we should say it again because it's the finale. It is the greatest culmination of a love triangle ever. Yes. <laughs> That these two former rivals are giving each other really important life advice that directly leads to them in their own romantic relationships, swinging big and going for it and being brave and getting their happy endings. Like both of them, right? Because, because the last time these two guys were sitting outside talking, it was director Xi telling chief Hong, be brave and direct like her. Like she will understand and she'll accept you. And he was right. Mm -hmm. But we also have to work in, I guess, because it was the finale, some absolutely hilarious product placement. (laughs) The pizza scene is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. In that, except for there to be pizza that we see. (laughs) Domino's is disgusting. And that is just true. Right. I can, I think that we can confidently say as Americans who have had Domino's pizza available to them for three to four decades, Mm -hmm. that no one in the history of the world has ever been this excited to eat Domino's pizza than director Xi and chief Hong. Not without some serious substances involved. (laughs) (laughs) They deserve an acting award for how happy they are to be eating Domino's pizza. <laughs> right. And director G is like this, this gourmand, right? Like he's, he, his <laughs> they both are. They both are. appreciation of quality food. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. This is one of those things that happens that like, it's like the, it's like the thing in K-drama with Subway where you're like, dude, no one has ever been that happy to eat Subway. It's right. just not, and I understand that there might be differences that perhaps Subway just tries harder and is actually better food abroad than it is here in the United States. But as an American watching this scene with Domino's, I was like, Domino's is like the worst. We're right now going to make up for this product placement by doing the opposite. <laughs> On this podcast, we will never have sponsorship from Domino's. <laughs> it's your worst pizza option and this is it's like they're so over the top in how delicious they think it is that I almost felt like it was like an inside joke 
because it was the most ridiculous product placement scene I think I have ever seen. And I've watched people be really excited about Subway a lot in (laughs) K-drama. Cece, what is the one thing that happens during this scene that director G does that is satisfying? Uh, It makes it all worth it is that he steals food out of Jushik's mouth. (laughs) Touche, director G. Touche. It's like, honestly, that is the only thing that redeems this. <laughs> Frankly, I can't even say unintentionally hilarious because I think that they intentionally made it over the top and hilarious. Yeah. Because no one has ever been that excited to eat Domino's pizza or or put like garlic sauce on a slice of pizza. Like, honestly, it's ridiculous. I think they were in on the joke. I think they were in on the joke too. And this show actually did a pretty good job with its product placement better than other ones in sort of like folding it in. But but this was actually yeah. hilarious. They did a good job with this and working as many Audis into the show as humanly possible. <laughs> Everyone in this show drives an Audi. Yeah, it made me want to drive an Audi. All right, but then let's get to the actual substance. They're outside and they do what they now always do because they are BFFs and Chief Hong's like, okay, so what's the real reason you're here? <laughs> and it's, I, I love that they bring it back to this metaphor, which was how their friendship began is that director G gets lost a lot. <laughs> and he now applies that to his life. I'm losing my way in life. And Dushik, being the very observant person that he has always been when it comes to director G, is he's like, because of Miss Wang. <laughs> Just say it, dude. Just say it. I, it's such an impish grin. He's like, yeah, so this is about her, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. What I like about this is I will admit, I get quite impatient when I watch media that is kicking the can on will they or won't they, unless they give me a very good reason. And what I actually like about this is it makes emotional sense to me when director G says, we were always a team. I hope she would always be by my side. So I'm scared if I make a hasty move, I might lose her forever. Can we sort of unpack that from his point of view? I don't think that's unreasonable in, in theory. Um, I've, I've had all of the emotions that happen in this show, you guys. So you can ask me anything, but I have experienced the same thing where you have a, the person is your friend and you're worried if this goes badly, I actually lose somebody. And I don't want that to happen. I get what he's saying. Yeah. He's already confessed to him that she has feelings for him. So it actually isn't that big of a risk for him to make a move. I mean, unless they break up. Sure. Right. I mean, the the risk is somebody who is entwined in every part of your life, except the romantic sphere of your life. If you try that and it doesn't work out, then the chances are very likely that then you will lose them completely. Sure. Yeah. Except she's wised up and she's leaving anyway. Right. Right. So that actually has now changed the stakes. Right. And that's her being brave. Right. Because even though it was hurting her, she perhaps could have just 
you know, she's made the choice. I'd rather lose him entirely than stay like this, which is now teed up. He's going to lose her if he doesn't act just like he did with Haitian. Yeah, it's out there, buddy. Everything, it's it's on the table. And I, I mean, Chief Hong is, he's such a soft grump with Director Xi. Like he's always complaining when he shows up and is like, oh, it's annoying you're here for lunch, even though he's really excited to order pizza with him, right? <laughs> and he is basically always kind of giving him a hard time to be like, yeah, so you know the girl I got? I got her because you sat on your butt and didn't make a move over and over again. So do you remember that? Don't make that mistake again. And I love how he kind of brings it back to this advice, you know, that is so goes hand in hand with the character of Chief Hong. It's like staying indoors because you're afraid it might rain or starving because you're afraid if you eat, it'll give you a stomachache. Like basically you are making yourself miserable because you won't take a risk. And then he just sort of leaves him looking at these photographs of their time together. And I mean, I, 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 there is a part of this that I really, really love that it is a television writer writing a happy ending for a fellow television writer. <laughs> the woman who's sort of behind the scenes, right? Writing the story and figuring out how to put it all together. This is a love triangle where the guy who loses out gets a happy ending. The television writer gets a happy ending. We finally get a scene that is going to resolve this. What I love about the way that it's set up is Jiwan is still waiting and director G is still late. <laughs> Talk to me about this scene where he pulls up and like, I think we get a picture of how they have always been. He is a disaster. Yep, and this is late for this interview. And she is there as his partner putting it all together, right? Like his shirt's not buttoned. He's still wearing his flip-flops instead of his dress shoes. Talk to you about the way that this is finally director G is swinging big, but is still them. Right. Well, he's, he's a mess and she's literally dressing him for this meeting. I mean, <laughs> she's putting the shoes on him for this meeting. It's embarrassing. <laughs> that's how it's always been. And, and so there's no reason for her to suspect that this is anything unusual. And so she doesn't realize that she's setting him up when she says, what are you going to do without me? Hmm. That's the line he needed so that he could say, I can't do without you. Hmm. But she had no idea because this was just their normal shtick. And it's perfect. It's perfect. What is so interesting about it is they are work partners to friends to now this tipping point to more. And rather than execute this moment in a grand rom-com, K-drama, slow-mo soundtrack, giving it its all moment, they're in a parking garage. He's late. 
And he asks her out by saying, let's discuss the idea for my next show over dinner, which is what they always have done. Mm -hmm. So he is going for it, but in a way that is them. Yeah. I, I love how finally, like, she is like, wait, what? <laughs> like, like she's been the one who's had her stuff together. And he is like been he like when he's with her, he's so and beep. You pointed this out, how different he is with her as opposed to the way he was with Heijin. Right. Because with Heijin, he was the one who like was always there and had his stuff together. But with Jiwan, she's the one that's like holding him all together. And he's the chaotic one. And she's like the grounded one. And he just basically is like, we still have so much to do and we have so many places to go. We're going to go back to Florence. We're going to climb that cathedral. I'm asking you out to eat just the two of us. He has to be that direct. He has to spell it out for her. Yeah. And the answer she gives him is, we're late. Let's go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> There's no grand, you know, put her in your arms and dip her and kiss her. It's like, yeah, okay, fine. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, granted, he made her wait for so long. I'm glad that she's going to, you know, maybe she's going to let him sweat it out a little bit through this interview as to whether they're actually going to go to dinner or not. Talk to me about the moment when she gets our long-suffering, behind-the-scenes television writer, gets into the car, and just, there's like this little, like, lets out a breath and smile. No one has ever put on a seatbelt that happily. If this show does in big ways, the before and after, we get a little scene checking in with them before this show ends. And the idea for their next show together is, what if it's a dating show about whether friends can grow into lovers? <laughs> and, she, and she says, like us. <laughs> is this like meta inside meta inside meta? Yeah, it's like a, 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 a like Russian doll onion. It really feels like that. <laughs> and I love, I love that like Doha walks in and it's like, dude, what is up? Like the yeah. energy is different. <laughs> yeah. And so we get this very, you know, uh, things are working out. <laughs> Things are going well with director Xi and Ji Wan by the end of this story. And their next show is basically going to be a tribute to what happened with them. <laughs> and even Doha, who is a, you know, they let us know his father is in better health and his father walked for the first time. And this work family that began in a place of either Doha's superiors having no idea what was going on in his life, but are now asking about his dad. And, you know, it's like the personal and the work actually are coming together where they're asking about how the other ones are doing or these best friends that were about to lose each other because they weren't reckoning with how they were feeling. 
this little work family gets their happy ending too. I'm so glad we got a check-in with Doha. It really, first of all, I just like that guy. He's great. He's really an example of our writer keeping her promises because her promises, I got in the beginning that none of these characters were going to be unimportant. And you didn't know when you first met Doha how important he was going to be, but he became extremely important. And what happens to him and what happens to his dad is extremely important. So we needed just that that tiny little bit of him coming in and telling us how he's doing. Yeah, because even minor characters are important in this show. Yeah. Not only in the role they played in the narrative, like Doha being sort of our ticking time bomb for Dushik's past, but he's not just that. He's a son and a coworker. And we end this story knowing that his father is better, which we know will be important also to Dushik and, you know, is also part of everything Dushik did, right? Because he was able to recover in a better hospital and receive better care because of what Dushik did behind the scenes. So, yeah. All right. We're going to check back in with Ganjim. Heidi, we in our last podcast already broke down the whole scene of Heijin and Jushik sitting by the lighthouse that night and her decision to stay in Ganjin. What I want to talk about is sort of the, if we were talking about meta and we have a television show within a television show, they do something that is very clever and almost breaking the fourth wall with the audience. We have Heijin and Jushik one month later, and Heijin is packing, and the actors are very much playing the scene to make us think that she is leaving Ganjin to take this opportunity when she says, thank you for being understanding, and Jushik says, <laughs> no, it's a good opportunity and you should take it. And then Misan pops in and is like, dude, why are you acting like she's leaving for real? She's only going to be gone for three days. They fooled us. <laughs> it's so meta. And then you have like, like, Heijin and Jushik are laughing, but it's really like Shin min and Kim Sun-ho are laughing because the show is subverting what television shows so often do, which is to do the separation and the time jump to then kick the can for the happy ending for the last five minutes of the series. Right. And then you cut back to them laughing because really she's only going to Ganjin for three days. And like, they're laughing that she's packing so many clothes. And now it's like, do chic that used to be like, how do you order so many packages? It's like, no, it's cool. Like you can change 15 times a day. And she's like, yeah, I totally can. Like, <laughs> All right. Talk to me about the final mystery of Gunjin being solved. I had almost forgotten about that. <laughs> Shin Ha-un keeps all of her promises. <laughs> does, but there's so much has happened and I've cried and I've laughed and so much, I just, I forgot. But it's another very clever thing where 
she's messing with us a little bit yeah. because Misson thinks that she's, you have like this, Misson thinks that she's won the lottery <laughs> while she's sitting next to her boyfriend who actually has. Right. Which we only know because we've seen this before. Tell me your thoughts about the scene of the two of them where he reveals to her that he, as he says, I am the third mystery of Ganjen. <laughs> it is so, it's another thing where, like, Jiwan gave director G the perfect setup without realizing it was unwitting. It's the same thing that Misan has just given him the perfect setup by thinking that she won the lottery and being disappointed and he's going to use it. And he says, so what would you do if you won the lottery? Like, like it's no big deal. He's just asking her this innocent question. And that puts them on this little road to, I want to buy a house and I want you and me to live there. I, can we tell, like our beautiful rotisserie chicken couple, when she, <laughs> when she is like, I want to buy a house and live in it with you. He does that little thing. Like, like she just made his heart explode. Yeah. <laughs> like he's, they're so adorable, but, but also he's like showing her the bank book and it's like, yeah. So I won the equivalent of like a million dollars. Yeah. But I've given all this money away and she gets to the bottom. She's like, no, it's still okay. He's like, yeah, no, but like turn the page. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and he's down to like, 300,000. <laughs> <laughs> Taking her on such a roller coaster. Right? I know. She's gone from thinking that she won the lottery to not winning to the lottery to thinking she did again to be like, no, you get, but, but like, what is so great about it is honestly, I, one of the expressions from this show that I will take with me is I praise my own eyes for discovering you. <laughs> <laughs> Like, he was such a diamond in the rough, guys. This guy was so painful at the beginning of this show and being able to, like, you know, he was the most painfully earnest character I think that I have ever seen, right? But, you know, they have this, like, beautiful, you know, he's like, a house up on a green hill, what would you say to that? And she's like, with the man I love, I'd spend a 100 years there. Like He has always been so sincere and so dramatic about everything and she's kind of laughed at that and found it cute but mm -hmm. that's kind of what she turns into at the end right yeah all right Heidi I love that the way this worked out about talking about the rest of Heijin and Dushik their journey is that you were with us for the episode 11 when they were off the rockers for one another. Yes. <laughs> and we are back to, guys, it's only going to be three days. <laughs> <laughs> and they are, and I'm laughing because I have such, it's not just like the secondhand embarrassment. I have in real life also had the, I wish I could put you in my suitcase and take you with me conversation. Right. So I'm like, oh man, I'm being so called out by this scene. Yeah. But it is so, um, it hits, it's both like, we're back to them being happy and we're back to the show being fun and watching these two actors just kind of have this magic of back and forth. But also remember guys, Dushik and Heijin are that really annoying couple you know yep. Yep. <laughs> who are 
really embarrassingly affectionate and ridiculous about each other. And now even the show again is a little bit meta because Nam Sook and Ha Jung are staring at them and are like, we're getting really sick of this. Yes. This has to go away. <laughs> like even the town gossip who would have killed for this scoop a couple months ago is like rolling her eyes and is like, <laughs> oh my God. But what is actually the kind of funny twist about this is Ha Jung may be rolling her eyes about them, but the second she gets a text from her husband to meet, she's literally running down the street while her friends laugh at her. How cute is she running down the street to see him? <laughs> I know. Tell me about where this show leaves off with Ha Jung and Yunguk. Because everybody gets a different version of their happy ending. Yeah. I don't I don't think the two of them ever had a proper romance. I think that's that's part of the problem that caused the the divorce or caused her to ask for a divorce was that it becomes clear to her that he married her somewhat out of convenience and, you know, a sense of duty or what or whatever it was. But I think it's kind of right that this is, it's a little bit of a swoon romance, them getting back together, but then it's just falling back into liking each other and being there for each other and being happy. Yeah, and I think one of the things, there's sort of like an emerging theme as we check in with all of these couples is that the writer and the director know who these characters and what these relationships are. Mm -hmm. So all their versions of their happy ending, you can be like, that's so them, right? So with Jiwon and director Ji in the middle of work, right? And he's late and she's holding all the stuff together, right? That, that ending is them. And, and Yoon Chol being painfully earnest, (laughs) With Mison, right? And Mison being like, dude, I discovered you. That is so them. Yeah. This kind of dorky guy <laughs> who they used to fight about trash. And that was sort of the bitter humor between them, right? In the early part of the show. But the but the painful flashbacks were his lack of consideration as a husband right? The fight over the sock on the floor. Right. He is like, I am going to be your 24 <laughs> seven personal assistance and welfare center where you can register your complaints and I will find solutions, which is so them. <laughs> really <laughs> right? Is. And him tearing up and her saying, do not cry. and her being like are you sure you can handle the complaints right because she's still like dude i've got a sharp tongue and i'm when i'm up grumpy i'm gonna let you know and he's literally just like bring it on yeah i mean this was a this was a tough journey with these two i think both as the audience and sort of thinking about second chances and marriages and when a partner messes up and standing up for yourself and and what do you do with that But with both this and then checking in with the other married couple, 
<laughs> and the other husband that needed to do better, Gum Chol, he's now without complaint and cheerfully lifting boxes all over the grocery store, telling his wife she needs to rest because she's recovering, but she's still hilariously cussing him out. <laughs> and you have this like comedic scene of two children angelically playing while she is dropping a lot of swear words in the background at her husband. And like even our little, like the children and maybe the like future romance that's going to happen in the sequel of the hometown cha-cha-cha like cinematic universe is Ijun giving Bo Ra his heart and she literally takes a bite out of it. Yeah. <laughs> He's almost like Unchul. <laughs> He's very sincere. He yeah. really is. He is trying so hard and she's just like smash. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in the sequel, she's going to probably do that to him. And then they're going to have to deal with like (laughs) the aftermath of it. In sort of continuing this theme of found family, Shin Ha-un takes the time to check in with Hei-jin and her stepmother. Tell me your thoughts about this scene of the two of them sharing a meal and, and the choice to, to focus it on these two women rather than the father also being there. Well, first of all, can I just say that food solves everything? <laughs> it really does. <laughs> I, in my life, but also in, in drama it, and in this one, it, everything is, hey, how you doing? Have you eaten yet? Hey, take good care of her. Treat her to good food. Hey, you have to keep eating even while you're sad. Like everything is okay, but but food, you guys. Like all this other stuff is happening, but remember food. Yeah. And it was the stepmother. She's saying, remember when you came over and it was really awkward, but then you tried my braised potatoes. Mm. And you sold, you told me they were delicious. And that's the tidbit that the stepmother remembers that told her this could be okay. Mm-hmm. It's huge. I like that we checked back in with this before the story was done because Heijin began this story estranged at some levels emotionally from her father and her stepmother. And it focuses sort of the resolution of that story with these two women that she now has a relationship with this woman who at one point her entrance into her father's life was the reason why Heijin ran away to Ganjin as a teenager. Right. And then it closes the loop on sort of this hanging thread. Although we knew that the father for all the ups and downs of their of their meeting with Chief Hong and Gunjin approved of him. But, you know, there's still this sort of like the father had expressed his disapproval, even though he apologized for as an orphan. But the mother, the stepmother sort of gives this blessing. We have four seats around our table. We have room for him. And it's like giving their blessing yeah. as parents to Dushik and Heijin. And I 
I love that it's, again, this conversation between these two women. And the father isn't there because these two women now have a relationship, even when he's not there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so Heijin has been gone for three days. Guys, how's, how's Chief Hong doing? Oh, it's still very hard. I don't even know I'm pouring the coffee. What? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Remember all the times that we saw him alone in his house, eating alone, sitting alone, and it was always framed kind of solemnly? Yeah. Now he's sitting and eating in his house, and he it kind of picks up on the thread of after the grandfather's memorial where all of a sudden he was sitting in this place where he's always been alone and it felt weird that she wasn't there. Now he's literally, I I don't know if he's like, some of his remembering, some of it's fantasizing a little bit (laughs) about Asian being in his house. There was a very smart thread that a fan made on Twitter that I desperately looked for before we recorded and I couldn't find it in sort of the depths of Twitter, but I, but I was able to do a little bit of independent research to kind of pick back up on what this very smart fan observed. All, all of the things that we might not realize he's imagining are the manga, the, the comic that she references, the Rose of Versailles. It's a really famous manga that is from a couple decades ago, but is quite was known for being sort of exploring sexuality in a new way or romantic love and kind of uh, maybe for the times, maybe being a little bit more racy and forward. And the Cloverbush wine, if you Google it, is sometimes called Nature's Viagra. <laughs> So a lot of these things that he's imagining as she's being kind of like flirtatious in his mind is abs- is like definitely a little suggestive. <laughs> but I, you know, the sort of eating something that you have to kind of chew for a while, but it becomes sweeter over time is kind of a great metaphor for even the two of them. <laughs> now they began and where they're at now. Yeah. And he's just basically sitting in his kitchen and basically it's just like, I miss her like crazy. <laughs> and let's face it, he doesn't just miss her. They haven't yet crossed a certain threshold. We're <laughs> <laughs> yeah. fooling ourselves if we said that that's not on his mind. Yeah, absolutely. With all of these references, it's definitely like a subtext. And it also... The Haitian of these memories or the Haitian of his imagination is quite flirtatious, like yeah. running her fingers down the column. Yeah. I mean, the show is definitely keeping it PG, but for those of us that want it to be there, there are these little seeds <laughs> if we want to grab Absolutely. onto it. The guy who taught Oyun to pour coffee, guys, he's a disaster. He's pouring yes. hot water all over and gets a text message and he's running out like he did for their date when they couldn't see each other for those days. And I don't know if they've been like watching Outlander or like what they're a matching plaid. (laughs) I don't know what's. How many shirts does he have that include multiple forms of plaid? There's a lot. He's like totally stepped up his game for this finale. They were like, we're not going to do plaid shirts. We're going to do shirts that have multiple plaid (laughs) patterns in one shirt. (laughs) And and only Chief Hong could pull that look off. (laughs) Because I remember 
that look from the 90s and it was not great, but he's pulling it off. And there's like, when he swings her around, right, there's like four clans of Scotland represented in that scene. There's a lot of plot happening in that scene. Just hitting me in the face. Yes. Do you guys remember what they were like? And like, this is like, they're back to being them. But what is so lovely about it is it is just so amazing to see them so happy. Yeah. Especially now that we know oh, all the journey that he has been on, the journey they have been on. They're like, I miss you so much. Like they're just such idiots in love. And it cuts to the two best friends that we began this story sitting at a table. And Hazen is as impatient as ever. <laughs> can I just, before we leave that scene, can I just give Oyun some credit for a hilarious reaction <laughs> to coffee being put in his hand? He burned his fingerprints off. <laughs> Beautiful job with that. I love that guy. <laughs> He's the best. Um, so she's sitting at the table with me, Saad. Like, remember when these two were began the story and they were really like Hazen had just lost her job and Misson's boyfriend, she'd walked in on him cheating on her. Yes. And they're sitting at a table. And what I, what I love is that like what we said from the beginning is Misson is so much more than just the rom-com best friend. Right. And they came to this town when things were not going great in their life and their journeys are absolutely not just about their partners, but we are now ending this story with one final conversation between these two friends. And Misan's like, yeah, cool. Like you can catch my bouquet. (laughs) (laughs) And Haitian who makes every decision and then just runs with this. Like I want, I want to marry Chief Hong, so I'm going to propose to him tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And he sounds like, what? (laughs) There's a lot, there's a lot of like really, when she's like, how do you know he's going to say yes? And and she's like, he'll say yes, but wait, I didn't really think about that part. I, I like the part where he, she's basically like, why are you in such a rush? And Heijin is like, I don't like seeing them all alone. I want to be his family. Oh, that's beautiful. And that's why she's in such a hurry. Yeah. Um, Misan is like, all right, bring it back to basics. And that is exactly what this proposal scene does in a really amazing way. I wanted really quickly because we've all watched a lot of TV. Proposal scenes, I'm going to be honest with you, are rarely good. So true. What they very often tip over into, and I am a huge romantic being can be really saccharine and cheesy. And I can't think of a lot of proposal scenes that I rewatch from TV. Can you guys, can you guys think of some examples of like mm. good ones and what makes them good? 
No. <laughs> I really can't. There's two things I think that go hand in hand about why I think this is probably my favorite proposal scene on TV. First, it absolutely stays in character and is rooted in the history of the relationship and who these two characters are to each other. Even if it is all of the music and the lens flare and all of the mechanisms that TV use to make a moment romantic and sort of epic are at play, it's still firmly rooted in who they are. And what goes hand in hand in that is like so many romantic scenes in this show, this is a scene that is peak romantic comedy. And what I mean by that is that the structure of the scene goes from sincere to humor, to sincere, to humor, to sincere. So it goes like up and down and up and down and up and down. And it constantly uses comedy in unexpected ways to sort of pierce the grand romantic moment and then bring us back, which I think is why, at least I think, it keeps it from ever tipping over into being too saccharine. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like how Shakespeare always had to put a little comic relief in his plays. Yeah. Or like the proposal scene or or the confession scene in the show was then followed by Heijin being like, okay, but can we not officially date? Cause I have this other guy I need to talk to. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, so it, oh, it's what they, it's what they, it's what they do. And, and they have really great writing and then two actors at their disposal who are able who have all those layers of chemistry of both the comedy and being able to do the very emotional parts like at their disposal to do it. And, and I think one thing that I really noticed on rewatching it is the way the score and the soundtrack support all of those shifts in mood as you watch. Like it goes from dramatic music to record scratch to that kind of like pizzicato plucking string sound that makes it funny. And then it goes to the song that is like Pavlovian to us now that goes back to the confession scene, right? So it uses the score to kind of support the ebbs and flows of emotion in it. Talk to me first about the setting that she is proposing to him on this speech. This beach, I think, is everything to them. I mean, they separately needed this beach and they came together on this beach. Multiple times, no? Yeah, since they were children. Yeah. Yeah. So she's like, I was reminded of the day we first met. And he's like, we were such a mess. (laughs) (laughs) And... What what I love about all of this is that we as this scene mines their history, but also what we the journey we went on with them as the audience. And so it not only mean like literally they were a mess. Like they she lost her shoe. The remember the 
town was shut down. She had no money. He was being surly. Like they were a rom-com. I don't like you going back and forth opposites as much as you can be. But also the deeper layer is like emotionally, they actually both were a mess. And she says, the crashing waves of that day brought us to this moment. I'd love if our shoes were always side by side by the door together. So neither would be lonely. She's talking about shoes, but she's not talking about shoes. Yeah. Oh, isn't she, Heidi? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I say obvious things, Beep. (laughs) I thought this was for sure about nothing but shoes and they were (laughs) shopping right after. (laughs) I mean, shoes have played a big symbolic role in this show. Not just why, why she bought those shoes for herself and when she did at a low point. Losing them. And the sea bringing them to Dushik twice, <laughs> and then everything he did to restore that sh- those shoe, like everything he did to restore that shoe and bring it back to her before he even really could process how he was feeling, right? But also like his shoes, right? The boy whose favorite gift were those blue cleats, and then stopped playing soccer and never wore them again, right? There's been a constant thread about shoes. And now there's sort of this everyday symbolism. She has now bought a pair of sneakers for him. You have the contrast in the two style of shoes, right? Like her very fancy designer heels next to a pair of sneakers, which it's Asia. And I'm assuming those are like designer sneakers, but she still bought him sneakers. (laughs) I love that all of this is if Yoon Haijin has always been the like, she kissed him first. She confessed first. She is now proposing first. I'm trying to think of another show or movie where the woman proposes marriage. Can you guys think of one? No, but it's not the only time it's happened to people in this show. It, we just don't see it. But we know. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah, the girl had the baby. She asked him after she got pregnant. Yes. It's not the first time a woman has proposed. There's a couple things about it. Not only is it, frankly, feminist that the woman is the one proposing to the man and and turning a lot of what we normally see in rom-com or romantic scenes is the man making the grand romantic gesture and professing his love and getting those big lines and the woman then being like, yes, I love you. I'll marry you. And she kisses him. Right. Yeah. It never occurs to her that she's supposed to wait for him to propose. Right. I I mean that frankly, regardless of the country you're from is not, I don't think is is not typical here in the U.S. either, right? Like maybe oh. it's right. So I'm like I can't think of a single real life example that I can think of where when it came to the actual proposal, the woman did it. So it's wonderfully feminist, just like the confession scene that Heijin is the one who gets to talk first and who gets the big grand 
romantic moment, right? She set this all up. She's the one putting the shoes on the beach. She's the one proposing. What it also does is we get to hear both characters propose, essentially. So it's beautiful and it's lovely and the music is going and the lens flare is starting. We have this golden light and then the music slows down like a record scratch and he says, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I will tell you at this moment, I was dying because it is so effing funny. (laughs) That every time he wants to do a big romantic gesture, like when he made the box for her, for her necklace, she's so hasty that she's already done something that completely takes the wind out of those sails. (laughs) You know what I mean? blocking him. She really does. He has worked 600 something hours to buy that necklace for this moment to propose after he was the one who kept having like such a problem talking about the future, right? Like he has been working for this for so long and she literally decided yesterday to propose and has totally derailed it. And he's so frustrated. He does the hair thing (laughs) with the back of his head. He's like such a, emotions are in his hair. <laughs> he's such a hot mess. And she's like, you don't like, she's like, you don't want to get married. Like, it's like, can you imagine if you were her and he literally can't speak? Like he's just stuttering this character who had a comeback for everything. If we're thinking back to that, like those first couple episodes where they were going back and forth, he is a hot mess. And I honestly, the comedy of basically, she's like, no, no, like, he's like, I was going to propose to you too today. (laughs) And she's like, her eyes are like, oh my God. And then she's like, no, 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 you can still do it. You can still do it. And then the whole, like, it's a relay race. (laughs) Passing in the baton. (laughs) And and, and fighting. Honestly. It kills me. I, I, when I was watching it, I had to just immediately rewind for that because I almost think that like Kim Sun Ho is laughing for real because it's so funny to tell, like cheer somebody on to recover, to then be able to propose to you. Like, <laughs> All right. So that is the comedic ebb. And then we're going to go all out on emotional, earnest, romance because Chief Hong may have been a hot mess for a second, but our dude recovers well. We go back to the first epilogue of this series, which was really kind of my first hint of like, maybe they were going to do something special with what seemed in the first episode, like a very typical opposites attract in a small town rom-com. Yeah. We get him narrating what we saw and had to interpret in the epilogue. And they, they like really come for us guys because they start playing that song from the confession scene in episode 10. (laughs) And he says, I saw a woman on the beach that day. She sat there for a long time, but all I could see was sadness in her eyes and I couldn't get it out of my head. So my eyes kept being drawn to her. Can you guys unpack 
that framing of that journey from his perspective, because we actually weren't as much allowed to be in Chief Hong's head at the beginning of the story. It's not the same as somebody saying, "I you were breathtaking. I thought you were so beautiful. I couldn't get my eyes off of you. Not at all. He saw a person who was broken like him. Yeah. Like saw like that day. Yeah. Yeah. It like brings it back to our shadows were the same. We got a snippet of that, that he was on a surfboard watching her, but he says, you were sitting there for a long time. And because of everything he had been through, he's the kind of person who noticed that. Mm -hmm. Well, I bet you a lot of other people just walked by her on the beach that day. And it also explains why he was so, despite his kind of sometimes surly, annoyed demeanor, why he kept helping her. Because he says, like, I didn't, you know, obviously he went on a journey of, like, recognizing his own feelings. I never thought I'd fall in love with her, right? So when you're, like, like Matt Like that day, it, it, I, I, I think it's really wonderful how they go back and fill in their story a little bit from his perspective in this proposal scene and in a series finale. Talk to me about him opening the box and showing her the necklace that she sold and saying, I worked 637 hours to get you this necklace. Don't you dare sell it. That is so funny to me. Like he's making this grand gesture and he's like, do not mess this up. (laughs) Yeah. Talk to me about everything that is sort of folded into him giving her this necklace back. Well, first of all, he's fixing what she ruined the first time. (laughs) Because he made that whole box for her. Hmm. But on his own terms. Mm -hmm. Because he worked his way (laughs) to buy it for her. And Beep, as you often point out, the way he spends his time, right? 637 hours worked to give someone a gift. The like meaning and symbolism behind that is so beautiful compared to like, if we were watching a show and like the rich guy buys you the diamond and walks in the store, right? Like so much of like what we see in rom-com. Oh yeah. It's super lame. Like, I think about the beginning of, like, Sweet Home Alabama, where they, like, walk through Tiffany's, and it's like, pick your diamond, right? And that's, like, such a rom-com thing. And this is, like, now I work 637 hours. I also learned that in Victorian times, in letter writing, if you were going to write a secret code to kind of evade your parents or chaperones reading what you wanted to say, 143 meant I love you. And 637 means always and forever. So the secret meaning 
embedded in the number of hours that he worked, although I'm sure it also works out to calculating minimum wage to the price of how many, how much won that necklace cost. Right. The, the symbolism to that number means always and forever. And Chi Hong, you know, everybody talks about the love languages and how people show love. He doesn't show love by spending money on people. He shows love by spending time. Hmm. His time is his currency. So that's why he wouldn't say, I spent X amount of dollars or X amount of won on you. Oh, absolutely not. He would say, I spent this amount of hours on you. Right. And this is, if we are going to unpack or highlight all of the ways that the way they set this proposal up from the beginning is feminist. The thread that it is picking up on is this was a gift that Heijin bought for herself as a present to herself, as a symbol of her financial success. She then sold it because she misinterpreted Dushik's mood after that as being threatened or feeling insecure about it. The way he chooses to propose to her and ask her to be his partner in life is to work to buy it back and give her that symbol of of her success and her gift to herself back to her and to restore it. Which I don't know if a man could signal how much he respects his partner as being equal to him more than that mm-hmm. and not being threatened by it. Right. She was yeah. able to buy that on a card without even thinking about it. And he had to work 637 hours to get it for her. And he gives it back to her. To say you were right that you should have this. There's two more parts of this proposal scene. There are, we have heard the three of us over many decades, many soaring and flowery expressions of love for proposals in many, many movies and television. I don't know if I have heard a proposal of marriage that is so straightforward and yet beautiful in the symbolism of what sharing your life with someone is about. Jushik says, two pairs of shoes by the door, two toothbrushes in the bathroom, two aprons in the kitchen. Everything will be in pairs. In a house where we keep those things, will you enjoy today, tomorrow, and all of your time with me? (sighs) (laughs) Do we just need to like lie down for a minute? Well, it's nice because he picked up on what she was already doing. She had had the idea of of the whole thing about the shoes. Mm -hmm. So he uses that, which is nice and respectful in, and he makes it actually even more wonderful. And really ties together what he recognized when he first saw her was sadness and loneliness. And these two people who began the story very, as very lonely people, and that manifested in different ways. Heijin was living alone in an apartment and only had one friend. And Dushik was always surrounded by people, 
emotionally on an island are now defining what marriage and what their lives are going to be like by what it's like to just live with someone and share your life with someone in everyday ways, which is really beautiful because we used to see him and we used to see both of them in, be, at the beginning of the story in their homes alone. This like, We've got the soundtrack blaring, guys. We've got the lens flare. We have a rare kiss because they're rationed out <laughs> in the show. We have full romance. And then Heijin screams that the water is cold and his shoe is gone in the ocean. <laughs> Which is how they started, except now it's his shoe. And then we watch them playing in the water and Heijin pushing him down in the water, just like she did in the episode where they did it in the rain. He's always going to be pushed down when they're playing. And the whole thing is so, is both brings back the comedy right when we were going full romance and yet is so them because the thing that brought them together sort of in addition to the loneliness is that they were able to play and have fun with one another doing the things that you're not supposed to do. Just like you're not supposed to play in the rain. You just got engaged and she's pushing him in the ocean and they're playing and with their clothes on like they did back then. And it's so them. And it's just like, honestly, so pitch perfect to have a show really get at all of the big and small ways that they're a couple and honor that in a proposal scene. Talk to me about how he's taking a shower and Heijin has already sitting down to make another list, guys. <laughs> <laughs> this is also very feminist. After the romance of getting engaged, Heijin is sitting down to divide the labor in their marriage. Who's yep. going to do what in the house? We're going to be a team and we're going to divide and conquer this equally. How do you think it works out? <laughs> Dude, she's like, I'm going to give you dental care? What? And he's going to do all the cooking and all the cleaning? And I actually Yudei. believe that he will. Yeah. Yudhe Jin is an excellent negotiator. <laughs> she should negotiate all marriages going forward. If the husband's going to do all the cooking and the cleaning and all she has to do is the laundry, that's amazing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which she likes doing anyway. She's just going to throw his stuff in with hers. Yeah. I mean, it also, again, ties back to so many things, right? Like, of course, she's freaking terrible in the kitchen. Of course, he's not going to let her in the kitchen. You know, when he said two aprons in the kitchen, I think that was just being romantic. I don't think yes. Chi Pong ever really meant that. <laughs> that was purposes. That's all that was. They talk to me about them deciding what the heck she's going to call him. <laughs> Because my understanding is that Dushik is like the Korean equivalent of a hot 35-year-old man being named Clarence. Yes. <laughs> and so then they have... She can't what? do it. She can't do it. She's not going to call him that. Because <laughs> can you imagine being like calling like your hot husband Clarence? <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about the return of Opa. <laughs> he hated that 
<laughs> Except he kind of liked it. <laughs> and she says it in this very suggestive way. And then they bring back to me like, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. Like, ah, I'm like totally weirded out. And my hair is standing up on my arm just like it did from like the beginning of it. What they ultimately decide that you are me and I am you is beautiful. Heidi, you were on when we talked about the moment where they fell into the bed and <laughs> and the lean. Talk to me about tap, tap, tap. Well, can we notice that he's just gotten out of the shower? <laughs> Which, remember the scene when he came home and she was like, you need to go wash up? And he raced. <laughs> To the bathroom, right? Because he thought that 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 was the reason that he had to wash up, which I love. (laughs) So he's just gotten out of the shower. There are things that can happen after you get out of the shower, I think, you know, in his opinion. (laughs) Right? And that close-up on his fingers and the tap, like, there is so much energy transferring between the two of them during that finger tapping. It's going to burst. It it is on the listen. Was I hoping for more? Is there a deleted scene in this episode from this <laughs> to the next scene in my head? Hell yeah! yeah. <laughs> but for being PG, yeah, it kind of reminds me of the way like a nineteen forties romance mind sexual tension because yeah. it it. it The sexual tension in the finger tap and the way she just sits back. And I love that it is, again, the woman who makes the first move and is like, I'm not going home tonight. And you're like, yeah, you, Nijin, like, get it. (laughs) Like, yours. Good for you. Yeah. Because sometimes I struggle with when I'm watching media from other countries, why I very much like you you are a guest in somebody else's home and so you have to respect the cultural mores and and how they present sex and kissing and all that what i don't like as a woman is when women are portrayed as kissing or sex as something happening to them yeah instead of being an active participant who wants to have it and that doesn't mean showing stuff or showing people naked. I just mean showing that sex and kissing should happen when women really want it to happen and that it is okay and healthy for women to want it to happen, if that makes sense. So I, I love that even though this is absolutely PG, just like she was the first one to kiss and the first one to confess and the first one to propose marriage, Hey, Jin is the first one is like, we're going to have sex. <laughs> and he, and then they just go for the comedy and he like throws his towel and was like, well, I wasn't going to let you go home anyway. I'm going to move the coffee table. I'm going to pick you up and I'm literally going to bridal carry you into the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and then it cuts to the next morning. <laughs> How did you feel? How, how did you feel when you saw the feet and then you realized it was daylight, which by the way, it was daylight when they went in the room. So they've been yeah. in that room for a while. They have. <laughs> I mean, I was so happy for the feet, but I wanted more. 
<laughs> you wanted more than a bare shoulder. <laughs> I wanted more. I mean, uh, it's a. Sh- we're totally being Western and American about it. I will yeah. admit, but few couples have as much chemistry as these two. Yeah, I, I, I would have. I could have. I could have gone for a deleted scene of just just horizontal kissing after sure. that bed lean. I thought we were going to get horizontal kissing after the bed yeah. lean, Heidi. Yeah, I don't need to see all kinds of stuff, Cece. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I'm not being gross. I'm just saying, like... It's not gross. It's just... Yeah. I know, but I know what you mean. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I just... I just... Yeah, I feel like I deserve that. We've been talking this entire episode about what people deserve, and I feel I deserve... A little bit of kissing and, you know, being in a bed. That's Hor- horizontal kissing in a bed. Even, even if Chief Hong needs a bigger bed. <laughs> and more than one pillow could be nice. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things, though, that is a subtle thing that director Yu Jae Wan has done is this step-by-step-by-step-by-step shifts in the way their bodies are positioned when they sleep. Mm-hmm. And we finally have the two of them facing one another yeah. on the same plane. <laughs> the next morning, Dushik is making breakfast in bed for her, guys. Of course he is. Of course he is. <laughs> Any thoughts about that? <laughs> That's my thought. Of course he is. Because he's Chief Hong and he's awesome and he cooks really well. And yes. I love the room service you provide. <laughs> Girl was smiling the next morning. <laughs> I think we can rest assured that Chief Hong is still good at many things. <laughs> I mean, again... They're walking sort of this tightrope of PG, but there is sort of this lovely romantic the next morning that to me rings true, even if it's being modest, that like the first time you sleep with someone, you are going to be under the covers, right? If your clothes are still off and they sort of do this like lovely, okay, well then I'm going to feed you. And Shinmana, I feel like is in her peak powers of how charming and lovely she is as an actress in this scene. Yeah. And then if you guys remember the last time they were in this room together, she asked him this question that he could not answer and set off the whole chain reaction of her finally being fed up with him holding back. And that was she asked him how many children he would want and whether he would thinking boy or girl. And he said he couldn't imagine it. And out of seemingly nowhere, he picks up that conversation right where it left off and answers the question. And then he kicks her out of bed to pick up trash. <laughs> how, how is there that much trash in Gong Jin? I, I can't believe he kicks out of her bed to pick up trash. They just had sex for the first time and got engaged and he made her breakfast in bed and she only got two bites. And she's like, dude, 
can, we got to get on it. Like I'm 34 and you want to have two kids. Let's get on it. Right. Like let's, again, I love how the woman is basically like, all right, when well, we're going to have to start having a lot of sex, if you want to have two kids. And he is basically like, well, no, it's like trash day. And she's like, you're yeah. ridiculous. We can skip trash. Day. He's like, not me not the woman I love and I can skip trash. And he's like, hurry up. And uh, it's again, like it was very sweet and it's very romantic. And then it is pierced with humor. You guys, how many times in this show did Heijin get busted sneaking out alone of Chief Mm -hmm. Hong's house when they, when, when barely anything or nothing had happened Right. The two of them walk out in bright yellow vests the morning after the first time they've had sex and run into the entire town. Do you guys notice that as nosy as everyone has always been in Ganjin, when they walk out, there's <laughs> there's dialogue on the bottom that says, just keep sweeping. And basically, <laughs> everybody's just going to be like, we're just, we're all just like whistle while you work. We're all just cleaning here. Everybody pretend like we didn't just see the two of them walk out in the morning wearing the clothes that they were wearing yesterday. Everybody be cool. <laughs> <laughs> and Haitian, the woman who never wanted anybody in her business and always tried, you know, all, all of that, never wanted to be the attention of gossip, literally yells in a yellow vest to the entire town, we're getting married. <laughs> And was it, is it my imagination or did did people not react at first when she said it until he came out and said, <laughs> yeah, we're getting married? Like they needed some sort of confirmation? I think they're so, I mean, they're processing a lot, right? Like, like conservative grandma who doesn't want to even want them to kiss for a wedding portrait or hold hands. Just watch the two of them walk out of this house together in broad daylight on like a trash collection walk of shame together. (laughs) They're still wearing all that plaid from yesterday. (laughs) And he's just like, yep, we're getting married. Talk to me about the total joyous chaos that then ensues. Oh my God. There's like noogies and headlocks. and stuff. (laughs) It's fantastic. It's so, like when they were all so happy when they first started dating like although this time the two biggest shippers in the entire town are unexpectedly Youngguk and Goomchul those two (laughs) those two wayward husbands who had some work to do are so happy that these two are getting married it makes my heart want to burst and it also makes me really want, want to laugh. And the fact that Oyun has Dushik in a headlock, <laughs> it's probably for that time where they were sitting in the cafe of rejection and he was like, you should really make something happen with Dr. Yoon and Dushik said, it's not like that. And he's probably like, I told you it was like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so fantastic. That takes us to... The meta within the meta, mm-hmm. where director Xi has come back to Ganjin to watch the premiere of the Seaside Grasshopper with the community that helped him make that show. Talk to me about 
we'll be able to see Gamry again. That kind of hurt. <laughs> yeah, the camera kind of goes around the table and lets the audience and every character kind of sit with that. In yeah. that really too soon, too soon. Well, yeah. but like in that really real way where somebody says maybe what everyone's thinking and then everybody just kind of sits with it and doesn't know what to say. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What I like about this thread is, do you guys remember that Gamry used to watch the VHS cassette tape of the time that our house was on television? And it was all about honoring her father who fought in the war for independence in Korea. Mm -hmm. Yep. And when she is talking to her friends on the night before she died, that's like one of her fond memories of her highlight. Like my life was so fun, right? Like I got to be on national television, right? Yeah. Now, director G, who guys, was always more than the third wheel in a love triangle. I'm mixing metaphors, but he always was more than, right? The third leg (laughs) in a love triangle. He along with this community filmed this television show in her home about food, about cooking, about her sitting at a table with these K-pop idols cooking for her, right? It, It ends up that this television show that was always being made in the background is a beautiful tribute to Gamry's life and her home that she was so proud of and and like her place in the community and gives her community a chance to always have that image of her on a screen that they can watch her moving and talking. It's really beautiful. And again, like not something we probably anticipated having that meaning back when director G popped up in town to make a variety show. Right. As the camera pulls away, if you notice, there's a really great, the show within the show shot, that if you look carefully at the television screen, it's the lighthouse of Ganjin. And our cast of Hometown Cha 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 watching the lighthouse of Ganjin while they are filming Hometown Cha 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 under the lighthouse of Ganjin. It's like the show within the show within the show. Right. Beep. Talk to me about Oyun getting a call from the show Sugar People. I struggled with him so much at the beginning. So <laughs> I just love to see this. And they want him to come on and be a mentor. And it's like he's being actually recognized and noticed for the work that he's done. And you know it's because of director G. Mm-hmm. He this is the show he asked him to put his name in for. And of um, course he did, because he's ridiculous. <laughs> you mean Dr. G? Because he's yes. awesome. I mean, how many times did we watch Oyun introduce himself <laughs> as Oyun while everyone else in town calls him by his real name and remind people that he was a singer, right? Point to the poster on the wall, play the music, hand somebody a poster and a CD, <laughs> like when I Asian's parents... And now he's getting a call where 
they're asking for Oyun and saying as a former legend in the industry. Like, this is the moment he's been waiting for. Even he gets his happy ending. It's so sweet. But then, of course, I mean, Jury just ruins it as quickly as possible. (laughs) She absolutely is a classic teenager. Oh, 100%. Like, he he 100% gets a thumbs up from his 14-year-old daughter which you guys, I have a 14-year-old daughter. That is no small thing. (laughs) But then she immediately makes it about herself, (laughs) which I I love teenagers, but that's their developmental stage. (laughs) She's like, so can DOS be on that? (laughs) By the way, we have never explained, and I'm sure some of our awesome listeners already know this, but for those of us who don't, DOS means denial of service. And the fan group is called Hackers. In computing, a denial of service attack, a DOS attack, is a a cyber attack in which the perpetrator seeks to make a machine or network resource unavailable to its intended users. So the name for the K-pop band is a computer hacking term. Which is why their fan club that Jury and secretly Haitian are members of is called Hackers, <laughs> which is really clever. And I never, as like, as a non-coding computer person, did not get the joke <laughs> until somebody explained it to me. This show, guys, just like Hometown Cha Cha Cha, here's the meta within the meta. Double digit ratings. It's a total hit. Hometown Cha 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 is a was, I believe, the second most watched non-English show on Netflix in the world in 2021, right behind Squid Game. And it causes a tourist frenzy of people going to Ganjin, just like, which I don't know if they knew this yet when they filmed the finale, real life Po Hong has become a total tourist destination to the point that they had to ask people not to go to Gamri or Dushik or Haitian's house because those are private homes owned by people. <laughs> <laughs> but you could like go to the restaurants that they went to and the whole thing. So there's this whole layer of meta. We get to basically watch our beloved Ganjin get a happy ending too. And that is that this, what was framed by Heijin at the beginning of the show as this backwater rural place that she was just passing through on her way to get back to Seoul is now on national television and people are now traveling to it and the town is flourishing. This pleased me if for no other reason than I always wondered how these people were making enough money to live. Like the people who had restaurants had like four customers a day and the supermarket was barely visited. I'm happy that they're going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, can I tell you guys might get mad at me, but you know what I think of when I see Nam Suk in that restaurant filled with people is how much money she's going to be able to donate to the children's hospital in honor of her daughter because of this. Wow. I hadn't thought of that. Boom. Feels grenade. everyone is doing so well and 
you know, this show, you know, and it's funny, right? They're in the grocery store. They're like, look, we have a signed poster by DOS. <laughs> like, that's so real life. Like, right? This this band was here and people are like, oh my God, can I see it? All of it is like so meta and so real life. And we have Dushik narrating it. So our second narration is Dushik telling the audience, look how well Ganjin is doing. And in kind of this meta way that that describes the last hour of this finale, he says, and the blissful days continued to pour in. Talk to me about the moment that Dushik is wearing his new suit and adjusting his camera and Heijin walks out in her wedding dress. It was a little confusing as, at, for a minute because I thought it was the wedding. Mm. Yeah. I love that there's a, there's a lot of threads that they kind of weave into these final scenes. He wore his old suit to say goodbye to his old life and his regrets. And now he's wearing this new suit that his wife bought for him for his birthday, never knowing what what he would ultimately wear it for and the shoes that she gave him and getting ready to take photographs to celebrate their wedding. When we first met him, he was taking photographs to get ready to say goodbye to someone. And also he once told her Mm. that he wasn't going to photograph her. She said, don't photograph me. And he was like, don't worry. Because you're not awesome enough for me to photograph. <laughs> now, now our dude is like awestruck <laughs> when she walks in the room. Like, <laughs> as much as he like is a wonderful actor and can do all of the things, the man should win awards for conveying a man in love. <laughs> because when she walks in, it's like, dude, you are wrecked. <laughs> they are doing their thing where they are being charming and adorable together but tell me your thoughts about this character moment that yes they're getting married in Seoul but Heijin wants their wedding photographs to be of them and self-taken in Ganjin well, she explains this balance that she's looking for. This is all about, you know, uniting these two things because they're part of us. So, yeah, we'll have the wedding in Seoul, but we'll have the pictures taken here. We're going to bust the people from Gangjin to Seoul. It's this perfect marriage, not just a literal marriage, but this marriage of the two worlds. Yeah. I, I think some people wondered if the show would end with like an actual wedding. And the show is sort of balancing, giving us a peek at the wedding day without it being the wedding. And I thought that that struck a really careful balance between giving the audience a little bit of what they want, but leaving the rest up to like your imagination, right? Yeah. So like, we're going to have to imagine what that wedding in Seoul with Haitians snobby friends from university and everybody from Ganjin in one room together. How's that going to go down? 
like, I, I mean, I personally would like to watch Jury critique all of her snobby friends' outfits. <laughs> and I could just watch a 30-minute episode of that. But the way they end this series, to sort of bring it back to the beginning of the episode, but also kind of extend it further out with like romantic comedy traditions, we begin this series finale with a funeral we are ending with a wedding and they are given equal weight and the community is together in mourning or celebrating and that's given sort of equal footing in what community means but if you think of sort of shakespeare's romantic comedies or jane austen's romantic comedies you always end with a wedding and the shot We'll break down a little bit of like the comedy, what happens, but actually watching Heijin and Dushik walk the same path with everyone in Ganjin that an hour ago they were walking to mourn Gamri is really beautifully symbolic, both within the show, but also reminds me of like the end of like, much to do about nothing or sense and sensibility or like you're watching the whole cast of characters that you watched all celebrate a wedding, right? Because that's sort of the classic thing that happened in rom-coms written like hundreds of years ago is that everything gets fixed by the end. And then there's this marriage and this union and that's where you leave off the story. So it's kind of like, it like recalls a lot of like classic and what I mean is like actually like in literature, how romantic comedies end with a, with a wedding, like, and the community coming together because everything got stitched back together and is fixed. But they also, because this is hometown cha-cha-cha, it is very funny <laughs> because while as wonderful and loving and important it is to have family in your life, family can also be really annoying. <laughs> and so they walk out of the house ready to take their portraits and who is waiting with her nose just above the wall for them? <laughs> I swear Namsuk just stations herself on the other side of that wall waiting for something awesome to happen that she can do <laughs> She's not wrong. There was some major traffic going through Chief Hong's house throughout this series. <laughs> That's why she waits there. That's it's a good spot. It's like going to the place in the lake where all the fish are. Like it's just, she's right. I, I don't know about you guys when you're with family, but I feel like with family, you can get a compliment and and like you'll get whiplash because like ten seconds later you're like, wait. But that's also a critique. Like, so so it's like, wow, you guys look amazing. But do you want to change the, like, shade of lipstick you're wearing? Asian's <laughs> like, no, I'm fine. Do you need help? No, we're fine. No, I'm going to come. And then Oh Yoon shows up, speaking of classic romantic comedies, like a minstrel with his guitar. And it's like, oh, so what you need is music. And then it's like, like, the grocery store couple is there. And they want to help. And Ha Jung is there. And Juri comes out. And Juri is like... Oh my God, is is Uncle Dushik actually wearing a suit? <laughs> and then it's like, hey, Jen, was that really the best choice for your wedding dress? <laughs> Only a teenager would say that to a bride. Like, all of it is, it basically, they pick up all the characters along the way. And we get 
this really earnestly beautiful where the grandmothers look up at the sky and they say, Gamri, are you watching this? Dushik is getting married. It's like what this show does so well in that it can take our heart apart in one second with the truth in life that in celebrations like this, you also think about the people that aren't there, right? Like, Heijin's not going to have her mother there. This is the family Jushik is going to have at his wedding. And Gamri is not going to be there. But they are thinking of her in that moment. And, And implicit in that is that somewhere they believe that she is watching all of this, right? Like, it's really beautiful. They're also really annoying. (laughs) Like, can you just talk to me about how annoying they are at this lighthouse when they're trying to take pictures? Well, this is actually another reason why this choice was so much better than a wedding scene. Because in a wedding scene, everybody has to shut up. And (laughs) just watch the walking down the aisle and then just the bride and groom speak when they do their vows. And you don't have a lot of opportunities with, for the other people at a wedding. But for this, you can get all their, now that we know these characters so well, we get all their very characteristic things. You know, like we, oh, of course you would say that. Of course she would say that. We get all the kibitzing back and forth and we wouldn't from a wedding. This is so much better. Oh, you're so right. Like you don't get Jerry saying, I'm going to marry June. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or even... I noticed this like tiny nugget is like even folded into the comedy of this scene. Remember all the times that grocery store couple, she would recall something from their wedding or when they were dating and he wouldn't remember. And everybody would look at him like you're a jerk. She's like, we did a kiss for our wedding photos. And he's like, we sure did. I'd like to (laughs) like recreate it right now. Right. And it's like, dude, that's what she had always wanted. Like, it's like this, they even leave us like, Dude, he gets it now, you know, like I even fold it into the chaos of this scene of them being like, your veil's in the way. You should kiss. You should move over here. You guys look like you're sweating. Like I, I, like if you just like Nam Suk is like hitting Dushik to the point that then it hurts. Like there's all this comedy that is basically just this ensemble cast, just having fun like one last time and everyone is so in character and it's just this chaotic, like what happens when a big family gets together, except they're just this family of Ganjin. And then they grab the camera and make a run for it. And I love that it is Heijin who yells, we love you. Mm-hmm. As we kind of get, we like we get our last look at all of these characters of Ganjin, like that's our goodbye to them. They run up to the hill. And if you guys remember, the series begins with the boat on the hill. Yep. The season premiere ends with Chief Hong introducing himself as Chief Hong to Heijin at the end of episode one. There's a lot of symbolism to unpack about this boat on the hill. And it's very intentional that our final scene with Heijin and Tushik is at this boat. And it's our final image of hometown cha-cha-cha. Talk to me about what we find out about this boat in the final scene. It's named for his grandmother. Yeah. I remember hearing other things about her during this show. 
he talks about his grandfather, but I don't remember him ever talking about her. No. Yeah. I, I mean, presumably she was gone, but yeah, this, uh, this boat that was, you know, his grandfather's livelihood until he had to take care of his grandson, Dushik was named for the woman he loved. And we're ending this series with the two of them taking their wedding photos in front of it. And you've kind of this comedy where she's like, can I write my name on it? And he's like, no, not there. I'm going to write your name like right up in front. And Heidi, you watched the original movie with me. Yes. Do you remember the symbol of the boat at the end of the film that this is adapted from? Yeah, it was, he didn't want it to, to sail away. He didn't want to have to say goodbye to it. And that's why it was up on the hill. Yeah. So, you know, this mystery, this weird, uh, purposefully jarring image that doesn't make sense that was first presented to us, right? Why is a boat on top of a hill? In the film was symbolic of being afraid of losing people. So you keep it far away from the water, right? To try and control loss. Right. In this show... Shin Ha-un plays with it in many, many different ways, right? It, it was symbolic of Chief Hong and the mystery of him. Why was this brilliant graduate of a prestigious university living his life as a handyman? And Heijin would say things like, boats belong in the ocean. And they had a huge argument about that stemmed from why this boat was there, but was really about why he lived his life the way that he did and sort of whether they had really differing values and like his refusal to explain it. And now the symbol of the boat, Heijin says, I'll be at the front of the boat, making sure you have a clear path. What does the boat symbolize now? I suppose their journey together, the future of their journey. Yeah, because he looks out and, you know, very poignantly for his character, right? He says, the sea won't always be this gentle, though. Mm -hmm. We'll be met with winds and waves and even typhoons will come our way. Because nobody knows that better than Hong Tushik. And I think I think ultimately the boat ends up symbolizing what people can be for one another, right? Like if the ocean is life and on some days it's calm and on some days there are storms and on the worst days there's a typhoon or a hurricane, then that's what people can be for one another. We can be those boats when life is like battering us, right? Yep. Beep. What does Heijin say back? She says, so what if we get soaked in the rain? Who cares if the wind blows a bit when we're in the same boat? Oh, good thing there's never been anything about rain or boats or umbrellas. In it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like she learned anything. Uh, like, that's what he told her. And I mean, all of the things that have to do with Heijin about her loss in life that made her scared to ever not have an umbrella with her 
because what would happen when the rain came and goes back all the way to when she was a kid at school and all the other mothers showed up with an umbrella and she didn't have a mother to show up with one. And he's the one who taught her that. And now she's offering that to him. That is beautiful writing for the end of two character arcs. The cinematography of the two of them standing by the boat and looking out at Ganjun or him leaning behind the camera to take pictures of his wife, the person he said he would never take pictures of, right? Yeah. Is really beautiful. And it's this whole scene is really earnest and you just have basically, you know, this adorable couple taking their wedding photos, right? And then they do what they always do and they pierce it with humor. (laughs) (laughs) Because what just happened down back in town with the people that they left like 15 minutes ago? Those people cannot survive for like an hour without these people. (laughs) Yeah. Someone is like, one of the grandmas fell and tore her mouth and their phones are ringing. (laughs) And dude, there's two heroes of Ganjin now (laughs) because they both have to run down. And obviously, Heidi, you watched Descendants of the Sun, right? Yes. It reminded me of this great kind of tongue-in-cheek ending of basically Descendants of the Sun was basically like these doctors and military people that constantly had to save people through earthquakes and attacks and all of this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so it leaves, that show ends with, they're at a wedding, but there's a volcano exploding in Vancouver, Canada, and they have to run off camera to save everybody, right? This, the stakes of Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha were always that these two characters Chief Hong and Miss Dentist had to save and help the people of their town with small things, small emergencies. So <laughs> in the middle of their wedding photo and all this beautiful, we leave these two characters running down the hill, hand in hand to the theme song. I mean, guys, it's been many episodes since we've heard La 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 Romantic Sunday. I felt like my yeah. heart was going to burst because we hadn't heard it in so long and they like waited and dropped it as like the final moment. I was grinning at my television like an idiot, like my cheeks hurt. And that's where we leave them running down the hill to go serve their communities. (laughs) Even if it's in the middle of when they were taking their wedding photos. And one wonderful contrast to the ending of Descendants I feel like I remember at least one of the women when they had to run off to deal with the emergency either took off her fancy shoes or like- She breaks her heel. Right. That was the symbolism. Right. No, not our hero in this character. She kept the fancy shoes on. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers quote, like women can do everything in heels and backwards. It's like, Yoon Haitian can save this town and still wear her designer high heel shoes. (laughs) Oh, all right. We're at the end. That's it. I would love to hear, because I I think that there is some, it took us a really long time to discuss this show, but with, with hindsight, one of the things we learned from the show, with hindsight and time, you can think about things. And I think it's actually really interesting to think about 
this story a year after it aired? Because I think you're maybe in a better position. I mean, obviously it's a different conversation 10 years from now or whatever, but I think you're kind of in a better, we have some perspective. B, thoughts about the way this show explored mental health and mental health journeys. Well, I think specifically with Dushik, we got something that's a bit different than we normally get. I've, I've talked about this before, but essentially we get more like the middle to the end of his therapy and healing journey. When in most cases in a show, first of all, it's not going to be a man that's involved in that to start with. But second of all, you basically see him get to the point where like he needs therapy. And then the fact that he would go to therapy is almost like Heidi was saying earlier with the fairy tale, have, you know, the fairy tale happily ever after that's it. It's like, Oh, he's going to go get help. Cool. Yay. Look at all that we did. And so it was really neat to see them actually go through where he'd already been in that spot for a long time and he'd basically taken it as far as he could in the clinical setting of the therapist's office. You know, it wasn't until he was going to have to get out and live and open himself up and, and do those things that that healing that he had been laying the groundwork for was actually able to take place. Yeah. Heidi, what about... I, I love, I, lo- I, I chose these questions on purpose because I love hearing the very wise and insightful things that Beep is always pointing out about media and mental health journeys. You and I have been friends for 20 years and really became friends sitting in each other's offices talking about TV. Tell me about your thoughts about this as like a TV show that you really enjoyed and sort of what it did differently from other TV we've watched and sort of as you go on watching TV, <laughs> what you what you think about after watching this? So when I explain to people why I enjoyed television so much more than movies, why I would, I would much rather watch a TV series than a movie – Part of what I tell them is usually that I like, as I've said before, to really get to live in the characters and live with the characters. And I can't get to know people that fast as I need to in a movie. I I would much rather be in a series so that I can become a part of it. But another reason that I like it is because of the opportunities that TV gives to writers that I think movies maybe don't to really use a lot of different devices and, and not have the time constraint that you would on a movie. So you can use the device of the epilogues and you can use the device of the going back and forth in time and showing us only parts of certain scenes when we're meant to see them and then bringing them back when we're meant to see another part. There's just, a, there's just an awful lot of wonder, wonderful opportunities there for TV writers. I'm, in contrast, there are pitfalls in TV because you have my attention for so long. And so you can mess it up. And I'm really way more mad at you if you mess it up after I've invested all my time in it than I am at somebody who wrote a movie. Mm. Because that was only well, hopefully only a few hours of my time. Movies are getting longer and longer, but that's not <laughs> Yes. It's a, it's a whole different discussion. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, and then you have movies that are parts of trilogies or part of cinematic universes that then raise the stakes in the way that you just said, like TV, right? Because of the time investment. But yeah, 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 that's a whole other thing. Yeah. And so, so one of the pitfalls, as again, we've discussed before, is that you're going to get me involved in this and you're going to raise a lot of questions and a lot of issues and you're not going to resolve them by the end. I don't even mean to my satisfaction. I mean, you're not going to address them and I'm going to be mad at you. And I think part of that is because in the United States, our TV shows we don't know how long they're going to run. And so the writers don't necessarily know when the end is going to be. So how can they decide what the entire story arc is? Whereas when you, when you know you're only going to have one season, you can plan all the way to the end before you start writing and cutting and editing the scenes in the first episode. And so you, you can know what you're going to do, but so, so, so many shows just don't give me, they don't give me that satisfaction. They don't give me the rounded out characters that I see in hometown cha-cha-cha. They don't, they give me, there might be a couple of main characters that are really important that I get to know, but then there's a lot of filler, a lot of, you know, what are those people here for? Why am I learning anything about them? Cause they're not going to be important. And Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha did such a good job of not falling into those traps and giving me all of the emotional backstory for all of the people and fulfilling all of its promises. And now it's a problem because I got spoiled by Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha. And so it's not that I'm looking for the exact same story in another TV show, but I want that kind of quality in all the shows I watch. And I'm, you don't necessarily get it from other TV shows. I'm not even getting it necessarily from other K-dramas. No, no. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've generally been in the same place. It's, it's a hard act to follow. And that's not just k-drama that's western tv too yeah it's brave in a lot of ways right um it doesn't kick the can it shows us what happens after it it thinks that people can just be enough to be the story even if you just dig deep enough right things other things have seemed superficial or disappointing since I, yeah, you and I have, we've, we've struggled watching stuff. <laughs> we've been texting. Yeah. I think for me, this show helped me rediscover Henry David Thoreau <laughs> and made Thoreau interesting to my teen daughter in her English class, which is incredible. This is a Korean television show, but I think it, I think K-drama in general has done this for me, but I think this show in particular sort of revitalized romantic comedy for me. I was thinking about where we are here in the U.S. with romantic comedy versus what I studied in as an English major about romantic comedy when, I mean, we used to study Austin and Shakespeare and Oscar Wilde and plays like Much Ado About Nothing or The Importance of Being Earnest or Emma. We studied them because they made really important observations about human nature while still being funny and 
about being who ends up with who and being about small towns or society and things like that. And I think it's interesting that where we sort of, with very few exceptions like Ted Lasso or Abbott Elementary much more recently, sort of got to a point here in the U.S. where only serious, quote, serious or dark or tragic or nihilistic, I'm thinking like HBO and AMC type shows are treated, as you said, Beep, intellectual. <laughs> like those are the only kinds of stories that can teach us things and make keen observations about life. And this show, if you actually have the sit down and watch beyond the first two episodes where the setup seems like it's just a typical rom-com has that thing about romantic comedy that is both very much about now because it's about community in the middle of being in a pandemic. It's about feminist issues about women and money and careers and motherhood. It's about divorce. It's about coming out about your sexuality. It's about suicide and mental health. It's about all of these things that are very on point for our times, but yet it also makes really, I think, what will always be timeless observations about human beings, both good and bad, right? Like words cut, we blame each other for things that we can't control. Mental health is not a straight path. And intimacy is really hard. It's really hard to be brave and talk about those things in our lives that maybe we're ashamed of or we're afraid that people won't like us. I think about sort of the wisdom that I'll take from this show, because ultimately the thesis of this show is that what people do for each other matters. If you think about all of the small acts in this show, like making tea for someone or sending a text message or taking care of someone when they're sick or bringing food to somebody's door, all of those small acts really ended up being big things. And so it's like the opposite of nihilism. It's about that what we do matters. It's kindness and empathy. Think about all the nuggets of wisdom from this show, from welcoming the rain to you're surrounded by many precious things to what is easy for some is hard for others, that we should carry one another on our backs, that we deserve to be happy. Those are the things that I will take with me from this story. And so when people are like romantic comedy, people dismiss it as trite or silly. I'm like some of the deepest and wisest pieces of things that I carry with me in my everyday life came from this show. I wanted to end with what Shin Ha Eun had to say about writing Hometown Cha 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 in the script book. And we are really, I think, as we've talked a lot, really grateful to director Yuje Wan. This is a show that's both beautiful to look at and was funny and it made us cry and it made us swoon and was really sensitive and how it approached a lot of things. And of course, the acting performances, Shin Minna and Kim Sun Ho, it's like a legendary rom-com on-screen couple. And it's a wonderful ensemble cast. But the person we always come back to is the writer, and that's Shin Ha Eun. And this is what she had to say about writing the story. 
When I first accepted this original work, I was no different from Heijin. It was unfamiliar and difficult, and it somehow felt out of place. While I was thinking about how to get into the center of the story, I found the answer around me. The drama came from my mother, who missed her deceased mother and misses her more the older she gets. At my grandfather's funeral, it came from my weeping father, who said that he was now an orphan. It came from a friend who was struggling with breastfeeding. It came from a love that endured hardships together. And after all, it came from people. I don't think I'll ever be able to write a brave and a powerful piece of work that makes a ripple in the world. Most of the things that I pay attention to are those that are weak and powerless. I'm just trying to write a trilogy of ordinary stories. It's hard to live, but I still want to believe that I can change the corners of the world with a bit of softness from its sharp edges. And I want to write a work that supports life with affection for the future. Henry David Thoreau's famous saying, there is no remedy for love but to love more, was originally written at the end of the synopsis of Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha. Can the two overcome their past wounds and find salvation in the name of love? After introducing the plot, I added that I hoped they would find happiness and move forward together like the name Gonjin, because I thought it was the message that penetrated our drama. Love here did not mean only erotic love. It is love for family, love for friends, and love for humanity. You may experience loss and be hurt through love, but I wanted to tell the story that healing comes from love in the end. What I think is the most fascinating piece from that very honest and really, I think it's really special to hear a writer be so humble and honest about like her insecurities as a writer and where she found her inspiration. What she says is, I don't think I'll ever be able to write a brave and powerful piece of work that makes a ripple in the world. And this story is one of the most watched non-English language shows ever. (laughs) All around the world. It's been translated into like six languages. It was like in the top 10 and I don't know how many countries. People are still, it's still regularly trends on social media a year after it aired. And it's just a story about everyday people, like struggling with things we all do and loving each other like I hope we all do. Thank you so much for joining us once again, Heidi. You are so much fun. I've had so much fun talking to you guys about my favorite thing, TV. So thank you for inviting me. Of course. So next, Cece and I will be covering Ted Lasso season two in a group of probably about four episodes. We're going to try to get that out before season three gears up. There's certain things that we want to focus on. So look out for that coming really soon. And after that, we are going to do Andor. And we have another co-host coming on for that. So hang around. If there's something that you have watched recently that you love, submit it to be published on our website, streamingbanshees.com. You could find everything there. Finally, though, for this particular show, we want to thank the listeners from all over the world. We've had people in Argentina to the UK, Germany, Saudi Arabia, the Philippines, Malaysia, on and on. We just 
never expected it. So it's, it's really cool to be able to connect with so many people across the world, just talking in our basements. (laughs) 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 So we are humbled and we're grateful that you've all spent so much time with us. And so until next time, we'll see you soon.